You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 544. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guide Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at former APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 10th of November, episode, a wasp entering through an ear duct may have been the cause of a small plane crashing on takeoff. A flight overshoots the runway, landing in Tanzania and goes into a lake. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 544 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline, airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me from across the pond from his studio... In Hartford, Hereford, and Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and uh, hi, everybody. Really looking forward to this show. We've got some great stuff uh, in the feedback. Awesome. We're looking forward to it as well, and also from his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho. Hey guys, glad to be back with you again. Looking forward to it. Great that you're here as well, and uh, last but certainly not least, a place to grow, place to stand. From her studio in Toronto, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. Hello. And let's get right on into the news. Stand by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. All right, let's start with this item in our news segment. This is an accident. This is from lavazdegalicia.es. I have no idea how Sounds that's good. pronounced, but it's a Spanish Spanish website. Uh, an accident uh, involving a um, Aiza 11B uh, Echo charlie bravo lima x-ray on the first of november of this year a pilot is injured when his plane crashes in rosas spain while trying to take off rojas i think rojas sorry uh thank you very much 
And uh, let's see. The injured uh, man explained that, uh, well, let me, let me build up to that. Uh, the pilot of a small plane was injured and was evacuated to the Lucas Augusti University Hospital on Tuesday afternoon. The vehicle he, the vehicle he was driving. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so I have to, I guess I should already say that this was a translation from the Spanish to English. Okay, so a loose translation. Very loose translation. So the airplane he was flying failed when trying to get up in the air on the runway uh, of the Rojas Aerodrome, uh, Castro de Rey, uh, and collided violently with the ground. Ooh. Sure did. Yeah, we're looking at <laughs> so pictures now. one of my landings. <laughs> well, this is a little bit worse than, I think, most of your landings. Um, <laughs> the plane was destroyed, and the pilot was trapped in the wreckage of the vehicle. The services of 112, the autonomous police... <laughs> <laughs> wow, yes. they, they have They're autonomous. Very sophisticated. They got robot police. Yeah, oh, Robocops. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, Vilala, no, Vilalba fire department attended the scene, alerted by a witness who witnessed the accident. The aircraft was trying to take off from the airfield when something went wrong. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Uh, yeah. the uh, the plane was unable to get up into the air and hit the track, uh, turning on itself. Is it a plane, a car, or a railway? I'm not sure. <laughs> Engine. I'm very confused. Looks, but based on the pictures, it looks like an airplane. Uh, okay. Well, at least it did before they crashed. And uh, he, after that, I'm not sure what it looks like. Uh, the, <laughs> a mess. Matchwood. Yeah. So, um, Ruben N. Uh, that is the name of the injured man. Was evacuated to the hospital as a precaution, but his diagnosis could be that of a broken ankle. His injuries to him, in short, were not serious. He was released from the hospital late on Tuesday. All right. So here's the crux of the matter. A wasp is the possible cause of the accident. After being rescued, the injured man uh, said that uh, a wasp uh, could have entered the uh, plane's air duct, uh, accessing the cabin. Uh, once there, uh, it caused him to lose control uh, after he was trying to swat the thing, I guess, and get, keep it from stinging him. And uh, because of that distraction, he uh, lost control of the aircraft. That's my translation of the translation. And, uh, yeah, so they're talking about the uh, airplane now on the, in the article, uh, the uh, IASA 111B. Uh, light aircraft. Uh, there are very few in Spain, even fewer that can still yeah, fly. Well, yeah, now there's one fewer. <laughs> yeah, uh, the aircraft is based in Rojas, uh, an aerodrome frequently visited by the wounded man, an experienced pilot with many flight hours. I've actively participated in many meetings of aviation lovers, among them the XV, or I guess that would be 15, Rojas Aeronautical Criterium, held a few months ago. Uh, the aircraft could be classified a, a, as great historical value. It's almost entirely wooden with a low rounded cabin and a long nose. Anyway, so we're showing some pictures here in the video of the airplane before it uh, had this wasp incident on takeoff. And then of course, pictures of the aftermath. Yeah, I wanted to know um, how the wasp was. Was it okay? Did it oh, survive? I don't know. They don't say uh, anything at all about that in the article. That's a bit that's mean, very really, one-sided reporting. I'll bet, though, that that darn wasp flew out of there and went, ha-ha. <laughs> he took, <laughs> yeah, he right. took off. Okay. Another one bites the dust. Yeah. You think you can fly, huh? 
This yeah. was good. Um, this is flying. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know, so I've heard stories. I think even Dr. Steph, we were talking about this be, uh, earlier in the week, um, talking about she knew somebody who, I think it was Dr. Steph, or maybe it was you, Nick, that uh, knew somebody who uh, had just gotten her driver's license. And yeah, that was like Dr. A, I think Steph. It was Steph, yes, uh, like a spider, like dropped down or something like that. And she, <laughs> she wrecked the car. And I'm thinking, I mean, that's, I, I guess, human nature to kind of like get freaked out by an insect. But, you know, in those situations, and these are situations that, you know, pilots have to think about. You know, you're rolling down the runway, you have 200, 300 passengers in the back of your airplane, and, and something like that happens, you're just going to have to suck it up. And you're just going to have to let whatever. Now, in this case, you know, in airline transport, there's usually at least one other person, at least now in 2022. Uh, in, in the in the cockpit with you to take control of the aircraft if you are unable to, like if you're busy swapping swatting uh, at wasps or something like that. But um, you know you have to you have to realize that something may happen to you and it might be startling, but you just have to kind of grin and bear it and fly the darn airplane until you can give the control to someone else. Or if you're by yourself, you might just have to you know you just might have to endure it because. Look what could happen to you. You could crash. Yeah, no, no. You could kill yourself. I mean, yeah. it's a miracle that this guy did lived through this thing. I mean, the, the photos you have to see. I mean, this thing is just destroyed. Yeah, yeah I thought it was very was... neat the way those two chairs, uh, the two seats, um, managed to just plant themselves onto the tarmac like that. that was... I don't think well, that that think happened naturally. The autonomous police. I was saying, no wonder if he broke his ankle if that's what happened. Oh, those are autonomous seats. Or maybe the autonomous police uh, had something. Ah, uh, yeah, the autonomous police seats. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah, yeah you're yeah, quite the fact right. That he was... Jeff. Go ahead, Nick. I the mean, fact that he was... <laughs> the other Nick. <laughs> Which Nick? That one. Go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say, the fact that he was minimally injured, when you look at the photos, is unbelievable. <laughs> For the people that don't see the photos... The airplane is upside down. Um, he's broken one wing completely off the airplane, like quarter span just outside the wheel. He's completely broken the engine, like firewall forward off of the airplane completely. And then the wing that's still on the airplane, he's like shattered the entire leading edge off of it. So the airplane yeah. is just yard sailed and, and upside down. And, and a huge the pool in... of petrol yeah. draining out of it. Yeah. The fact that he is uh, yeah. minimally injured is amazing. If I'd been that wasp, I'd have uh, lit, lit my cigarette <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Gubby's and sharing an incident petrol. there. Yeah. yeah, Gubby in our live audience says, had a moth fly up my nose at 100 feet above the runway at Cap Bastion. Landing on NVG, okay, uh, night vision goggles. Took a lot of sneezing to get it out. Oh my gosh. Yuck. That wow. can't be comfortable. Well, I mean, what <laughs> airplane allows moths to come in and fly up your nose? I'm thinking maybe the C 17. I don't know. Was that uh, <laughs> yes. what kind of airplane was that, uh, Gubby? Uh, I'm guessing. We know that he flies that airplane, but I'm sure he's flown others before uh, they figured out his flying skills and then they moved him off to something else. <laughs> yeah, sent him to Canada. Well, speaking of broken airplanes, let's talk about this next one. Oh, well, thank you, Liz. That's a great transition. Too bad I'm the only one that heard it. 
Uh, let's <laughs> you can move take on. it for your own. Okay. What, what did you say again? Speaking, speaking of, of broken airplanes. Speaking of broken airplanes, <laughs> let's continue with the next item. And this is from the Aviation Herald, our favorite uh, news source for aviation incidents and accidents. A lot, a lot of sibilance there. Hang on. Got to dry up my mouth a little bit here. Okay. Um, let's see. A Precision Air Service ATR 42500 registration five hotel Papa Whiskey Foxtrot performing flight 494 from Dar es Salaam to Bukaba or Bukoba, uh, Tanzania, with 39 passengers and four crew, was on approach to Bukaba's runway 13 at about 8.53 local time, so um, morning flight. The aircraft overshot Bukaba's runway 13, came to a stop submerged in Lake Victoria, about 100 meters or 330 feet past the end of the runway, with the nose of the aircraft pointing away from the shore. The aircraft is about 80% submerged. 26 passengers were taken to the hospital, 24 passengers and 19 fatalities. Amongst them, the captain and the first officer of the flight were confirmed. Uh, local police reported the, uh, the aircraft crashed into the waters of Lake Victoria. We already talked about that. Uh, because of bad weather. In the afternoon, Tanzania's prime minister visiting the accident site reported that a total of 19 people had died. It's unclear whether there were two rescuers, survivors succumbed in hospital, or whether there is discrepancy with the number of people on board. Um, let's see. Survivors reported that the aircraft had been approaching Bukaba. Am I saying that right? Bukoba? Bukoba? Bukaba? In heavy rain. The approach was turbulent. The crew aborted the approach, climbed back, then announced they would try another approach. And if that failed again, they would uh, need to return to Dar es Salaam. The aircraft was on final approach again when they suddenly found themselves in the water. <laughs> okay. We're on final approach, and then we just suddenly found ourselves in the water. That's an interesting sentence. The cabin filled rapidly with water. A flight attendant opened the emergency exit in the back where they were able to get out of the aircraft, and after some time were picked up by fish fisher boats. Uh, according to recent charts by Tanzania's CAA, there are no instrument approaches published for this airport. There are also no ground-based navigation aids, NDB, VOR, DME, at the aerodrome. The next NDB and VOR slash DME are at Mwaza, Mwanza. And the uh, weather here, METAR, um, from Mwanza, uh, about 95 nautical miles southeast of Bukaba, on the shores of Lake Victoria, uh, showed um, winds 300 at 5 knots, uh, thunderstorms, uh, broken clouds at 1,800, few at 1,900, uh, cumulonimbus, no, <laughs> that's a new kind of cloud I just made up, cumulonimbus. And uh, the temperature, 19.17. So there were thunderstorms, and there were no instrument approaches. And uh, they were trying to fly or land this airplane on the airport, the runway. And uh, I don't know if they actually hit the runway and just had trouble stopping it, and they overshot. Or maybe they, um, maybe they stopped short or got into the water short of the runway. There's still some confusion about this, but uh, it looks to me like they were 
I, I don't know that I have to, I guess I have to look at a map of Lake Victoria and, and figure out where they were in relation. But there's one photo here that's pretty clear that uh, it was kind of heading out into the water and you can see that um, that island in the background. I'm just not sure what direction that is from uh, from the airport. Any ideas, uh, Nick or Nick? I have no ideas. No ideas. Nope. Captain Nick, have you flown into uh, this area of the world? Uh, yeah, I was about 12. Oh, you don't <laughs> probably remember very much then. No, but I do remember um, I was in a VC tent. My old man took me out on the lake to go sailing, and he said, uh, try not to get too much of the water on you because there's a little parasite that will get into Ooh. your uh, into your eyeballs. Uh, I think it's called Bilharzia disease or something, and uh, he said, watch out for that. <laughs> I don't know what I expected me to do. <laughs> yeah, well, how do you get in the water without getting the parasite in you? <laughs> exactly. So uh, there you go. That was that parental warning just in case somebody tried to sue in the future. You uh, said, no, I, <laughs> yes. I warned him. I told him not to get too much yeah. water. We, um, we played golf for the rest of the trip. That was a great trip, actually. But uh, anyway, by the by, it's a, it's a lovely big lake. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the airport that we would have landed in Uganda. Mm -hmm. the, the big one, I guess. I um, Yeah, and I'm looking at that too, Liz, uh, at the map. see that little island there, yeah? Yeah, I see uh, Bugala Island. Yeah. And uh, I see uh, Bukaba, um, Tanzania. I'm not sure exactly where the airport is, though. Uh, it's on the west shore, western shore of uh, Lake Victoria. Oh, there's the airport. The airport's oh, yeah, right, I see right that. at the Right at the shore. It's oh. right. It, it, it runs right down to the shore. Oh, and that's on, a different uh, island than there. Uh, not the Bugala. Uh, no, Muzila. it's Muzila. Muzila. Oh, you know what? Looks like. Well, I don't know. The way the, 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 way the uh, tail fin is uh, situated, looks like the front of the airplane was pointed toward that island. And looking at the map, the island is southeast of... The airport so it looks like they were uh, trying to land on one three and then overshot or they were landing on uh three one or whatever the numbers are well, three, the, four. the text says the aircraft overshot runway one three and came okay. to a stop yeah the island's just the like oh, off the end of the so, runway like okay aligning we can That's, establish that now yeah okay now uh now that i know that i'm gonna have to take all that stuff that i just said out of <laughs> no no i quite like it i'm gonna leave it in for sure um yeah so yeah it was landing on one three overshot went into the water it's all making sense now to me it probably made sense to you dear listener about five minutes ago but it takes <laughs> well, me all of our tanzanian <laughs> takes me some time to figure things out sometimes <laughs> sorry <sighs> okay well anyway so that's sad that you know, that many people died in this uh, accident. But then look at this recovery Well, yeah, I effort. mean, the fuselage completely uh, submerged and a big break in it, which would have allowed water to come in very quickly. So, um, you know, it's not the your standard um, ditching drill that we all sort of plan for where you settle gently on the water. You put your life vests on, you clamber out onto the wing and inflate them a step off. No. This was more like a scramble for survival, you know, like you're yeah. a submarine. Well, I will note. It's been terrifying. 
We'll note that uh, that uh, fuselage breaking like that just forward of the wing happened uh, when they were extracting the airplane from the water. They said oh, it was, okay. wasn't was like that under the water. Um, it was... Uh, well, that's even worse because, yeah. uh, you know, you've uh, you've got less chance of getting out through the exits than you are through a damn great hole like that. Yeah, very sad. So pretty short runway. What was it, 3,500 feet? Just less, in fact. Uh, what did it say? Well, I think I read, I'm trying to go from memory now, so I might have been thinking of another. Uh, See, this is my, say... my problem. Oh, I... No, it doesn't say how long no, the it runway say... is. No. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'll see if I can find out. Okay. But we do know that, oh, well, according to this article, uh, there were no um, instrument approaches or navigation aids. So it's a completely visual, you know, operation going And the weather was supposed here. to be bad, yeah. yeah. And the weather was bad, yes. Uh, thunderstorms, heavy rain. And uh, it may have been one of those situations where they would have been better off. Well, obviously, now, we, in hindsight, it would have been better off if they had just returned to their departure. Okay, uh, four and a half thousand feet. Well, four and a half thousand? Off, but okay. only 98 feet wide. So okay. uh, it's not a huge length, that's no. for sure. If you uh, overshoot the touchdown point, it's a good idea to go around. Yeah. Not try and stop in that length. You're correct. Hmm. Well, if they had it to do again, they probably would have done yeah. something different. All right. Let's um, tell me when to put the chipmunk on. up. Okay. Um, hang on, Liz. Yep, I'm hanging on. Okay. All right. Um, this next one involves a uh, go ahead, chipmunk. Okay, a flying chipmunk uh, ended up uh, hitting uh, some kind of antenna or something. If you'll move to the next slide. There we go. We have some eyewitness uh, pictures of the incident. And, oh, wait a minute. Hang on. I may have. It's like it's eating that. No. <laughs> well, it does look like that. Uh, no. The chipmunk in this case is actually an airplane. Uh, a plane that was participating in a festival held at the Bragado Aero Club, province of Buenos Aires, uh, collided with a communications antenna and had to make an emergency landing. As a result of the accident, four people were injured. And uh, this accident occurred uh, on Saturday afternoon during a festival called Bragado Vuela. While the neighbors watched each of the stunts carefully, they experienced a moment of great fear when they observed that the aircraft hit an antenna and part of its structure Do you have some broke. videos, Jeff? I do have some videos, Liz. And now I'm going to upload that video. Ever prepared, I am, they said. Ever, ever, ever prepared. Ever prepared. Never, actually, is the word that works. Here we go. Boom. Oh, no, I want this one. Okay. And poop. These other windows. Apparently it was the oldest chipmunk still flying. That's, That's what they say, yeah. yeah. Oldest chipmunk. Chip chipmunk still flying uh, according to uh, one of our sources okay here we go it's not flying anymore no yeah let's see that again Ooh, yeah. Oh, friend, is that what they're saying? I think so. Oh, friend. Oh, I friend, think. you effed up. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, yeah, uh, there's another uh, video that I have there that uh, is from another source, but it's a lot of voiceover and running over. But actually, it's some pretty interesting information. Maybe I'll go ahead and play it anyway. Um, it's from, I think it's from a um, canine appreciation uh, YouTube channel uh, entitled um, Arf World. Yeah. Get it? Arf? Arf. Arf World. No. Uh, <laughs> airport rescue fire fighting is oh, okay. the uh, and we've and we've actually stop chasing the chipmunks. <laughs> we've actually used um, video from uh, this guy's YouTube channel before, and uh, he does a great job. Nope, that's not it. How about All right, one? November fifth, twenty twenty two, in Argentina, this aircraft Oof. clips the antenna with everybody watching. It was during a display flight, and you can see it almost missed Ooh, it. Yeah. Luckily, the pilot wasn't injured, but some debris fell into the crowd. And you can see how close it was from this wing detaching. It popped off all these uh, rivets, but you can see how well made this aircraft is. DHC-1 chipmunk, Canadian. very old aircraft. Here's some damage to the wing here, as we can see. And then all along here as the wing was uh, ripping off of the aircraft. So this is it here, De Havilland Canada DHC-1 chipmunk, uh, Lima Victor. November Romeo Yankee was a tail number. This thing probably has a lot of history uh, to go with it. So very sad that it has uh, a damage like this. I mean, you can see the background. It's very open fields. And so it's very unfortunate that it hit the one antenna that was in this area. I mean, you can see how wide open the farmland was. It was at Bragado Airfield in Buenos Aires. And just nips the tip of one antenna so luckily again nobody was injured for the most part please subscribe thanks for watching see you guys Four next people time on the ground well, he says don't put your foot there it doesn't say don't put an antenna there <laughs> that's true, true but it's true that's a, that part of the wing i bet if you went <laughs> a little bit further out they'd have like ah, an okay. antenna yeah. with the necks yeah okay. guessing fair enough yeah all right uh, what do you think, uh, Nick Camacho? Uh, yeah, this guy was pretty lucky. I, I wish they would have. Uh, I wish we could see some photos of the fairings taken off to figure out, you know, because it looks like that wing has, like the front attach point wing is separated inches from where it's supposed to be. So I would be curious to know, like, how the how the wing is still attached. Uh, but the other thing is, he was flying right over a bunch of people. That's just what I hope so, said. Uh, it mentioned that a couple of people, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, here in the United States, at least in sanctioned function, you know, um, flying functions, uh, you, it's it's difficult to fly over crowds of people. Big no, you no. Know, when you're doing air shows and stuff, there's an air show line, and you have to uh, direct your energy away from groups of people and not fly over them. Under you know certain thresholds and stuff. Obviously if you're high enough, like stadium flyovers and stuff are allowed to happen, but um, yeah, this guy seems fairly low over a, a big group of people. Mm -hmm. Probably have different regulations. I know that Yeah, I'm, I'm sure captain Nick, uh, you're <laughs> going to say something about the really restrictive, um, you know, restrictions put into place after that. After uh, what was that? A Hulk? Shoreham. Or Shoreham. Uh, Hunter. 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 Uh, Shoreham. Uh, yeah. Field. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, they are uh, in the UK. Uh, they're 
um, quite prohibitive now. So it's actually very hard to get into a lot of airfields that used to regularly hold uh, air shows now and do anything in the way of uh, aerobatics uh, or, you know, high energy manoeuvring, that kind of stuff. So um, some of the best displays you'll see in the UK are now conducted over the ocean, you know, so everyone sort of lines up around the cliffs or wherever and, uh, you know, they have freedom to... Uh, fly of the ocean and do go down to you know very impressive heights but um they you know if you're going to do this professionally uh, uh and properly you're going to survey the site now the red arrows uh the synchro pair one of them once hit the mast of a yacht and um destroyed the wing and they lost control he had to eject he got out of it, out of it safely but afterwards they tried to work out what had gone wrong and in fact they'd surveyed the area uh, it was all fine and clear and he was at his authorized height of around 30 feet and um unbeknown to him the yacht sailed into his uh, flight line so he was really he was maneuvering hard came in hadn't been there on the last pass next time he came in you know he he didn't even see it because it's such a thin piece of kit. There are a lot of boats around and he hit this uh, mast. So um, this is not the same situation. This is something that's been there all the time. And I have no doubt that if, uh, you know, he was given a minimum height he was legally allowed to fly to, that would have been that height above the mast. So, you know, you're, you're allowed to fly down to a height above all the obstacles. Well, that's an obstacle. So <laughs> you've got to got to take that into account and then have your uh, safety factor on top of that so i don't think they did a very good job of uh, of setting this up and perhaps uh, organizing this display which is a shame because it's a lovely old airplane and they're very lucky to have got away with it yep all righty i think it's time to move on to item d this is also from the aviation herald a Calm Air uh, ATR 42-300 registration. Oh, another ATR. Yeah, another <laughs> one. Charlie Foxtrot Alpha Foxtrot Sierra performing Freight Flight 464 from Rankin Inlet in uh, Nunavut to Najat. I don't know. How do you pronounce that, Liz? Najuat. Najuat in uh, Nunavut or Nunavut. Is that Nunavut. You... Nunavut. I'll have Nunavut. 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 Okay. Nunavut. Chilly up there. Yeah, because I'll have none of that. Um, with three crew on board, landed on uh, Najuat. Naujat, say it again. Naujat. Na Nua Naujat. Anyway, look it up. Funny old place. I mean, it would take you 10 minutes to say, Where do you live? I live at Nanuanajuat. You know, if I lived there, I think I'd have figured it out (laughs) for a while. (laughs) Anyway, um, uh, it it was formerly Repulse Bays. It was very repulsive. Well, there was a famous ship that was up there. Oh, it was a famous ship named Repulse. Why would somebody name their ship Repulse? It's <laughs> so repulsive. Repulse can, the enemy. Uh, defeat the, you can repulse uh, the enemy, of Repulse, course. okay, gotcha. Uh, runway 34, which is uh, 1040 meters or 3,400 feet long. Not a long runway. 
at about 1324 local time, but veered right off the runway and came to a stop with all gear off the runway on soft ground. Now, Ouch. I say... And, one... and if you're going to make comments about ships' names, you need to listen to this plain tale. Ooh, you you guys have got some wacky ship names. Yeah, we do. Yeah, but I think the best one is uh, Shippy to... Uh, what is it called? Um, Boaty McBoatface. Boaty McBoatface, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, very um, good. <laughs> all right. Um, and, and that's true. What did you get to? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, they veered right off the runway and came to a stop with all gear off the runway on soft ground. There was one serious injury. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. And that was the captain, which is very apt. Yeah. Because he was flying it. So. Yeah, so he got what was coming to him, apparently. <laughs> yes. um, the uh, I'll tell you what, if they put a metal spike on the front of the instrument panel, right in front of the captain's face, the landings would be a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> they probably would be. <laughs> well, I hope nobody's listening and implements that. Uh, let's see, on November 1st, twenty. so this happened in 2020, November 26th of 2020, the final report just released on the first of this month, said, uh, let's see, a, con a, a contaminant, a contaminant, wow. <laughs> I'm not even drinking. This is just water. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah, the problem. We'll take your word for it. Okay. A contaminant inside the left propeller's high pressure pump caused its pressure relief valve to fail. As a result, the propeller entered a pitch lock condition and it remained in that condition until the aircraft landed. Because there is no indication in the cockpit of a pitch lock condition in flight, the flight crew were not aware that the propeller had entered a pitch lock condition and they continued to uh, continue the flight to that airport that I cannot pronounce. Repulse uh, Bay. Without uh, Repulse Bay, yes, uh, without discussing any options. Immediately on touchdown, reverse thrust was selected by the pilot flying without confirmation that both low-pitch lights had eliminated. eliminated. With the left propeller in a pitch-lock condition, the selection of reverse thrust resulted in the aircraft entering an asymmetric thrust state. Due to the asymmetric thrust, directional control of the aircraft could not be maintained. As a result, the aircraft exited the landing surface of the runway, traveled across rough terrain adjacent to the runway, and was substantially damaged. For undetermined reasons, the captain's safety belt buckle released during the runway excursion, <laughs> and the captain's head struck the forward upper area of the cockpit, resulting in serious head injuries, which could have been much more serious if they had implemented Captain Nick's uh, cockpit <laughs> yes, redesign right. with the spike yeah. right there uh, forward of yeah. the uh, captain. Um, I'm wondering if the first officer just reached over and like un unclasped the... Uh, the, uh, <laughs> well, there was a suggestion later on that he Matt perhaps didn't wear his. That was my suggestion. Oh, <laughs> yeah, was he yours? Yeah. Anytime, <laughs> anytime you see brackets, that's me. Oh, okay. Right, wait, so, we'll call you Captain Brackets now, shall we? Yeah, Captain Brackets. Uh, what I'd like to. Okay, wait. Let me uh, move on a little bit before I ask my question. Um, Let's see. Findings as to risks. So this is the final report. If flight crews do not assess abnormal situations as a, as a team, there is a risk that they will not identify the nature of the abnormal situation and determine the most appropriate action to take. And uh, layout and design of a quick reference handbook made it difficult for flight crews to find a procedure to address a malfunction. They may not take the appropriate actions quickly or efficiently, which may lead to an unsafe aircraft state. 
so the uh, abstract from the uh, Transportation Safety Board says, while on descent, the crew observed abnormally low propeller RPM indications on the left engine. Okay, point one. They knew something was wrong uh, with the left engine and the propeller RPM. Uh, but apparently they didn't really go into much depth as trying to figure out and troubleshoot why this was happening. Um, the uh, Let me move down a little bit, a few paragraphs. Um, the It says that the captain... Um, well, let's see, they, the crew briefly discussed the situation, but they did not consult the QRH to find a solution to their situation or take any procedural action. Well, why would they the captain that? considered his options, returning to the Rankin Inlet Airport, shut down the left engine or both. However, he did not specifically discuss these options with the first officer. <laughs> secret, secret squirrel. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you what I'm thinking. Uh, this meant that the flight crew did not fully assess their situation as a team, which may have secret prevented them from identifying. Squirrel. Oh, there's a, the secret squirrel on screen. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> uh, this is not in accordance with CRM best practices. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that was a, a major factor of the fact that they kind of went, yeah, something's not right, but uh, yeah, we're, let's just keep going and not, not think about anything else and what the ramifications of this might be. Pretend it isn't there. Uh, let's see. In order to prevent the aerodynamic and centrifugal pressure from driving the propeller blades into fine pitch and cause an overspeed condition, the propeller pitch lock mechanism activated and locked the propeller blades in approximately 22.5 degrees of pitch. Again, there was some kind of a contam contaminant in the, um, the, uh, the pitch, uh, propeller pitch uh, pump. And uh, so it went into this, I don't know, you know, in our cars, if you have an automatic transmission, like 99% of the people do, um, if there's something going on with your transmission, it'll go into, what do they call that, limp home mode or whatever, where, you know, it kind of just locks into a, in a particular gear, and then you have to drive very slowly all, all the way home or to a repair station or something like that. I didn't well, know that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, looks like this is like a self-protection mechanism in the, um, uh, and, and, uh, Nick Camacho, you know, you're a mechanic and you might, and you are, have a lot of, a lot of experience on propeller driven, uh, vehicles. Um, and maybe you can kind of delve a little bit more into this whole issue with the pitch lock, um, situation. Uh, I, I'm not super familiar with, uh turboprop propeller operations you know i know um my obviously my background is more in piston engine stuff and and we have uh you know lockouts to keep uh to keep propellers uh out of feather and high and low pitch stops but i'm not as familiar with um this system that they had that seemed to put the the weird thing to me is that it, it uh, when it failed, it says you know the propeller pitch lock mechanism activated and locked the propeller blades in approximately twenty two point five degrees of pitch. The fact that that failure, like the response to that failure, puts the propeller in a like a known failed state, but it's this weird situation where the crew can't tell. You know, like I would I would almost expect for it to you know, maybe feather or do something where it says something's wrong here. Uh, I'm going to put the propeller in a state where um, they're aware of the failure. And I, I realize that's kind of counterintuitive because 
the engine's still making power, so you wouldn't want it to feather. But, um, but they do kind of allude to the fact that they knew that the propeller RPM was, what they say, low? Yeah. Yeah, they have said uh, abnormally low propeller right. RPM on the left so engine. They suspected something, and, and the captain was thinking about it, you know, to yeah. share it with anybody else. But <laughs> but they didn't go much more deeply in uh, the uh, assessment of the situation. But the thing I have really have a question about is this next paragraph. On touchdown, 750 feet past the threshold, the pilot flying immediately selected reverse thrust, possibly due to the relatively short runway length. However, only the right propeller went into reverse. Almost simultaneously with the selection of reverse thrust, only the low pitch light for the number two engine eliminated. The pilot monitoring did not have the time to identify the status of the low pitch lights and to make the too low pitch call out before reverse was selected. The flight crew was unaware that the left propeller was in pitch lock condition and that the reverse thrust was unavailable on the left side. So I I guess, I don't know, do we have anybody in our live audience that flies or has any experience with, with the ATR? Uh, because from what I can gather from the way they're kind of presenting this to us, it it looks to me like you're supposed to check before you go into reverse that you get these too low pitch um, yeah. lights on and you have to actually call it out um, before you go into reverse thrust. And they mentioned it's a very short runway, so maybe the captain or whoever was flying didn't want to wait until they heard that call out and just went right into reverse thrust. And, of course, that just... And, and, and I've got a question also, because is this something they could have done during the descent to help them identify a, a possible fault? Mm -hmm. So uh, could they have, you know, throttled back and seen what happened to the uh, the pitch? see whether this light came on uh, in the descent to help identify it. So I, I'm like you, Jeff. I, I don't really know enough about how props work, but I've got a vague idea. I'm And I'm um, thinking maybe the system won't show those two low, uh, the low pitch light until it is sensing that it's on the ground. Could be. Because it says be, something yeah. about in flight, you're not going to get this light. Okay, that, uh, but again, uh, maybe I'm misreading that, or maybe I'm, um, you know, yeah. inferring something from the way they're presenting this. I don't know. Anyway, so so uh, the situation, I guess, is on well, on the ground when they banged both engines into reverse pitch. One would have gone the right hand engine. The other one would have stuck uh, because it was locked. Were but would it actually have sped up? like you would if in a jet engine when you go in reverse yeah. thrust. And so not only did you only get reverse on one side, but you might have actually got positive thrust on the other side, which would have made this excursion even more likely. I don't know. Uh, Nick's nodding. so um, I, Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense to me, okay. especially with it being a physical lockout. You know, the, you know, the other thing is uh, I, I don't know anything about ATRs. I am kind of curious – um, what sort of like feedback and automation is built in? Because, you know, like you're saying, Nick, the in a turboprop, the power lever controls the propeller pitch and the power to the engine or the fuel to the engine. Um, but I don't have a good enough understanding of that to know how closely coupled those two things are. Um, so that would be my first question is, you know, is the, is the, um, engine controller aspect of the 
power level like power level like Nick said is it aware of that lockout mechanism and then the other thing is you know you'd almost think with having a um with having multiple indications a left and a right indication you'd almost think they could have they would have uh logic built in that would not permit this to happen kind of like you know the logic that won't allow you to fire off the ground spoilers if you don't have the weight on wheel switch on or something mm-hmm. yeah that that's what i would have you know preferred to have seen rather than putting a light on put a, a physical lock on the um reverse pitch selector so you can't move it until you've got a positive indication that everything's okay on the 340 if uh you know you weren't allowed to you couldn't engage uh, or bring up uh, the outboard engines until they had both gone into reverse because you could try and pull the, the reverse levers all day but they wouldn't physically move until both those interlocks had been sensed uh, the reverses were engaged and uh, then it would be released and you could give them full power uh, pre- purely to prevent that out of uh, you know that asymmetric thrust problem mm-hmm. well it's too bad we don't have somebody on the crew that uh flies airplanes uh turboprops flies airplanes <laughs> or flies airplanes <laughs> wait, wait a minute uh, well some of us do still um but not with uh with propellers or, or with someone in the community tur- turbine the community. yeah yeah but uh yeah so maybe uh maybe steph could have uh let us know what uh she knows about about those systems oh, she's skiving again is she I don't know. I think she's, I don't know. Family she, commitment. She, uh, a family commitment. She has, a, oh, fair enough. Okay. She has a, a, an excuse. Um, mm-hmm. She's been formally uh, excused. Mm-hmm. Do excused absences still work when the doctor who wrote the note is the doctor who's using uh-huh. the note? <laughs> That's a good yeah. question. Yeah, it is a good we question. Probably I'll just get write independent. a sick note. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, HR, we'll deal with it. Oh, that she is HR. Never mind. (laughs) And she's the doctor. Uh, There's just a lose-lose situation for us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Let's see. And the next and I believe last item. Correct. In our news is from, again, Aviation Herald. A K-Mile Asia Boeing 737-400 freighter. Registration Hotel Sierra Kilo Mike Charlie performing flight 804 from Singapore to Jakarta with four crew departed Singapore's runway two right went zero two right when the outer left main wheel failed, followed by the inner left main wheel. The crew continued takeoff and continued to Jakarta. Singapore's foreign object debris detection system alerted the tower about foreign objects on the runway. A detached, a detached panel and tire debris was found on the runway. A message was sent to Jakarta. The crew, who had heard a thud sound during the takeoff roll but couldn't locate the origin, continued. The captain, suspecting a tire failure and deciding they would land in Jakarta using the flat tire procedure, slowing with reversers only without brake application. The aircraft landed safely on Jakarta's runway 25 left uneventfully. During turnoff, the captain noticed the aircraft was tilting to the left. The leading edge flaps had not fully retracted, and and they also felt uh, vibrations uh, when, when taxiing. The crew stopped the taxi and requested assistance. It was found that both left-hand tires had blown out. 
Now, this is interesting because, uh, interesting to us anyway, uh, because the last plane tale dealt specifically with a situation very similar to this when a uh, tire that was under-inflated affected all the other tires and uh, turned out to be quite a tragedy. Yeah, that was the DC-8 that was uh, flying around with an under-inflated tire. Uh, that was, it was only like 20 PSI below the requirement. Uh, and when, when you're talking about tire pressures of around 180, that doesn't seem a huge amount, but the stress it puts on the other tires um, is quite considerable. Uh, and they, uh, they had a tire failure on takeoff, but they uh, dragged the uh, damaged rim along the runway for long enough for it to actually catch fire. That was the big difference there. But otherwise, these are very, very similar uh, incidents. So... You know, uh, as I said, uh, when we talked about that last uh, plane tale, um, you know, you kind of important to do your homework and find out about previous incidents because they, you know, they can still reoccur today. Had this crew perhaps had that in the forefront of their mind, they would have uh, you know, perhaps rejected or at least left the gear down and uh, had a just stayed there, burned off, and then landed back. It would have been a lot safer. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they should listen to this show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this occurred back in 2021, so we had not yet talked about it. Oh, damn. I know. If only I'd known, I would have done that play tale earlier. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of your fault in a way. Yeah, it is. I feel really bad now. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's why I'm here, to make you feel bad. All right. Well, Just before you move yeah. on, I haul boxes has a comment on the oh. last item here. All right, uh, I haul boxes in our live audience has a comment on the last uh, news item that we were talking the about. The ATR. The ATR depends on the aircraft. Some manufacturers combine pitch and power into one handle. Other others combine pitch condition. I believe the ATR has a set of thrust levers and a set of prop condition levers. That's all foreign to me. I mean, if I got into an airplane with all these darn levers, I'd go, ah, I don't know what this is. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to touch it. Keep me on the it. ground. Yeah. Tim Van Ram also has a good question. Okay. Tim Van Ram says, I'm not certain if tires can hold as much PSI as tires. Oh, we're, we're talking <laughs> about the spelling. That's tires with an I get too tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here here in the, the the U.S. and I don't know, maybe... How do you spell it in Canada, Liz? The U.S. Properly. way. The U.S. way. Oh, okay, you guys oh, kind of oh. do a little bit of both. Sometimes you spell we're, we, English we're very way. diplomatic. We you are very try. diplomatic. Well, not me. Not me personally. <laughs> well, not you, but I mean, you are too. Well, most no, of the time. Really. <laughs> but Some your country as a whole is... Yeah. So, and I didn't just call your country a whole, uh, but yeah, it may I have sounded agree. that way. <laughs> all right. All right, um, let's get to know us now. All right, let's get to know us. Oh, look at that. Very nice. Captain Nick has updated our getting to know us picture or pick or image or whatever well, graphic. I cheated, didn't I? I, I stole it off a some artwork for one of the previous shows. Yeah, but you're the one that created the artwork, so you're, I mean, That's true. you really didn't steal it. No, I mean, no it was, copyright violations. Yeah, no copyright violations as far as we know. <laughs> <laughs> Unless maybe the manufacturer of some of those hats on our heads uh, yeah. might object and say, hey, 
that picture is not allowed to be used without permission. Yeah. Anyway, I do I do like how Nick got a uh, rather flattering flattering normal hat that he yeah. chose mm-hmm. to wear out, <laughs> <laughs> and all the rest of us have these yeah. little clown hats on. Yeah, well, wouldn't you if you were in charge? <laughs> yes, it's not co- it's not coincidence, Nick. It's not. Coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I love it. Thank you very much for updating that, Nick. No, no trouble. All right. Uh, so uh, let's see. Who wants to start off with uh, what has been happening uh, between shows? How about Nick Camacho? One of the Nicks. Yeah, I can go. Mine's real quick. Yeah. I have been, um, aside from a couple of uh, brief interludes out to I uh, replaced the brakes in my wife's car and uh, took care of a few things uh, at my folks' house. I've been sitting in front of, my, front of my computer since the last show, working on work stuff uh, and studying for uh, tests. And fantasy football. And fantasy football, yeah. I'm just joking, but maybe you really were. <laughs> I, do, I do have a little. I do have a little bit of fantasy football happening. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, as a matter of fact, this week I lost to my wife and son's co-owned team. So. Oh no. Um, yeah, it was a little. Uh, it was a little disappointing on my end, but mm-hmm. you know, it's okay. So, what is fantasy football? Is that when you imagine the the cheerleaders playing instead of those ugly that's, men? That's my fantasy football. <laughs> You're such but, a sports fan. Uh, no, but, fantasy football is uh, so. Uh, yeah, fantasy football is basically where they. It's this. It's become a huge, huge thing in the United States. But it's uh, where they use the real stats from the players, and. Uh, you basically go and draft your own team and then throughout the course of, as the football year moves along, you have games, fancy football games against other people in your league. And it's basically you build your own team, but they're using real stats from the games and that sort of stuff. How on earth do they actually decide from the stats who's going to win the game? Well, it's, it's all very quantifiable, right? So like you, you, you draft different players and, and there's a, a set scoring metric. So for instance, like a running back um, for every 10 yards, a running back runs, you get one point for a touchdown, you get six points and so forth for all the positions. And then they just add all your points up. And so each team has like the same amount of players, right? A quarterback, two wide receivers, two running backs and so forth. And then it's just total points at the end. Okay. I would, How do you actually play the game, as it were? To it's like there's like little apps on 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 your phone, so it's all managed. Um, oh. So like I have a like if I go in here, you can see this is my fantasy football roster. So I can like go in there and and make changes. Aren't you a few players in. short there, old chap? Uh, well, so. That's the other thing, right? I was going to and I was going to try to make a comparison to soccer and I don't know how because there nothing's really scored in soccer outside of goals, right? Or nothing metrics yes. aren't metrics aren't as prevalent in soccer as they are in uh, some of the sports we have over here. So That's true. Uh we even though there are 11 players on the field for a football team, for fantasy football they only utilize uh players that have commonly counted stats i guess i'd say skills players is what we call them over here quarterback wide receivers tight ends and running backs 
So is there money involved? Does money change hands mm -hmm. in this? Yep. Oh. I mean, it's it's similar to like a pool. Uh, there are, like the league that I play in is like 20, every, it's a $20 buy-in and, you know, like first place gets whatever, 60% and second place gets 40% or whatever. But uh, there are some big, there are some large dollar games as well, or leagues. Yep. You know, when I was a young fighter pilot, uh, a lot of the guys on the squadron used to contribute each week to a football pool. So they put their money in and they'd be able to put a lot of uh, guesses in as to what the scores would be uh, for the leagues. And um, they weren't doing very well. Uh, and I, uh, independently, I just happened to go out and buy a big, powerful motorcycle. And they decided that they were going to stop entering the football pools and they were going to buy life insurance on me <laughs> and make themselves the, the benefactors. Yeah. The benefactors. So, cause they reckon the odds were better that they were going to get a good payout on that than they would well, in the football Yeah. Pools. You showed them they lost. Still <laughs> here. <Yes. laughs> now Jim Fulton uh, in our live audience says fantasy football equals Scotland winning. Uh, yes, That's the other one. Absolutely, yes. That's somebody's fantasy. Anyway, which team? Oh, Mohammed uh, is asking which team support Nick in the World Cup. I don't think any team supports me. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm only joking, Mohammed. Uh, uh, I I am not a football supporter. I, I know I've just alienated ninety percent of the people people in the United Kingdom, but I uh, like watching cricket and rugby, uh, and various other. Uh, he, he only sports. says that he only says that Mohammed because uh, USA is playing uh, the British team in the L World Cup this year. You mean to the, the day after team. Thanksgiving, and it'd be a lot less embarrassing for him if he wasn't <laughs> interested in the outcome. You know, in, uh, England did uh, lose to the USA once. I think it was way back about in about years, eighteen ninety-seven. They just something. lost like about ten years ago. Seventeen. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we probably put or maybe our they C drew. team in. I don't remember. Or our D team. They, they, they didn't beat the United States. They may have drawn, but uh, it was a big deal because <laughs> well, this, you will, guys be, this will be a huge news flash to everyone out there. Players. I was going to say, this is a huge news flash to everyone out there, but we are not good at soccer here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think your girls' teams are pretty good, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. They are. They are very good. Yeah. And, Sorry, and oh, the Jim did hear me. Somebody did hear my, my little comment. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh... <laughs> um, but they weren't playing uh, uh, English or uh, uh, world football. Soccer. They were, they, were, yeah, they were not playing soccer, yeah. <sighs> <sighs> All right. Captain Nick, what have you been up to, sir? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, actually things have been a bit busy. I've been prepping for various talks and after dinner speeches, some of which have fallen through, sadly. So I'm very disappointed I won't be going to the uh, Professional and Executive Motorcycle Club for their uh, Christmas blowout in a very fancy hotel because that would have been a good gig. I would have enjoyed that. But um, as it is, uh, I, I'm up at... Brooklyn's uh, the Aviation Museum and Motor Museum um, next week to uh, talk to the uh, Brooklyn's branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society 
uh, which is going to be good fun. I'm looking forward to meeting those gentlemen. Um, I was going to mention that, and thanks to you, that I had a good idea for this week's plain term, which we'll hear in a little while, uh, because you spotted Michael Sullivan's um, idea that he posted in uh, um, Slack. Slack, thank you. I was, mm-hmm. I was about to say StreamYard, but just not right. <laughs> How did he get into StreamYard? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I've actually written down StreamYard here in my oh, no. notes. How stupid <laughs> is that? Yeah, so in Slack. So thanks for spotting that, and thanks to Michael uh, for putting that idea in. So got that. And also thanks to uh, Gubby there for bringing me back to somewhere close to 50%, uh, because in last week's uh, artwork... I misnamed the background uh, of the artwork, which was an airfield, uh, which actually was Bagram, not uh, what I said, which was Basra. Um, They're actually not that far away from each other in in big terms. One's in Afghanistan and the other's in Iraq. But exactly right. I should have known um, and not to make that mistake. Uh, And pretty obvious as well because uh, around Bagram there are vast mountain ranges I mean huge mountain ranges very impressive um, and mm. finally uh, the poppy behind me because tomorrow is the 11th day of the 11th month and on the 11th hour we will uh, here in the United Kingdom and many other countries we will have a, a minute silence uh, to remember those who died in the Great War, the Second World War, and all conflicts uh, it now recognises. So uh, that'll be something that we do here. And I'm certain in Canada. Mm-hmm. In Australia, they tend yes, to uh, do it at, at dawn. They have uh, their big yeah. parades and things there. So um pretty sure it's the same day but i'm not absolutely convinced originally right. celebrating the armistice um yeah right, right. Exactly. world war one right. uh we um here in the u.s um it's a little bit different it's called veterans day here where we honor not only those who were lost in wars in the past but also those are who have served like myself and um and uh, who are are still serving, serving. Uh, and uh, our um, what's the uh, the day Memorial that we, day. Memorial Day is the one it, that's very similar to uh, what you're talking about here for uh, Remembrance Day. Uh, Remembrance Day, yeah. And of uh, course, I did a plain tale about the origins of the using the poppy as the symbol of uh, remembrance. So, if you're a little bit interested in that, just go back and I'll go uh, find it. Hang on, you'll, uh, you'll be able to find that. Liz is going right now to uh, research that, <laughs> and it will be when you're if you're listening to this right now in your podcast player, you are seeing the link to uh, the plain tale regarding the origin of the poppy. And uh, so that's all you have to do is just like click on that it is, and boom. It is how the poppy grew. How the poppy so grew. So that's it for me. And it yes. was on APG 496. APG 496. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. All right, thank you. So we'll have that link in the, in the show notes. All right, very good. Um, let's see. Not just you, you, Jeff. Well, I, um, tr- I'm trying to recall exactly when we recorded the line. Oh. Did we record the show a little bit later than normal? Yeah, because we were going to record after I returned from I my it was trip. A two-parter, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a two-parter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we finished up on Saturday. 
And uh, so that, and I was like scrambling because that just put me way behind and as far as editing. And it was a very busy weekend for me um, because of the situation at my church uh, and availability of uh, musicians to uh, participate in the various masses. And because pretty much um, I don't really have anything else going on besides this podcast and flying airplanes and singing. Um, I have volunteered to be available as much as possible. So I ended up singing the, uh, the, the afternoon, the uh, late afternoon vigil mass on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I sang four masses, nine, 10, 45, 12, 15, and five o'clock. And, uh, during some of that time in the afternoon on Sunday, the house that I'm in right now was uh, being shown to potential buyers, fingers crossed. And um, also, um, I had a conversation a little while back uh, with um, someone who was going to be uh, from out of the country, uh, going to be visiting our country. And uh, they rang me up on Saturday evening and said, um, you know, let, uh, are you ready to get together and go to dinner, Jeff? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd already... I had already gone out to dinner myself and had already put myself into bed and was just turning off the light when I decided to check my phone and then realized that, uh, oop, I, I had forgotten that I said that I was going to be available to meet up uh, Saturday night. So um, I didn't have any personal secretary, uh, you know, calling me up and telling me, hey, remember, idiot, you're supposed to be uh, me. meeting up with these people. I know I didn't tell you, Liz, you would have reminded me, I'm sure. Anyway, I said, are you going to be here tomorrow, maybe? Like tomorrow, late afternoon, early evening for dinner? And he said, yes. I'm like, great, let's do that. So it happened. And I have some audio commemorating or memorializing or whatever you want to say. Uh, our little meetup at the Cheesecake Factory. Here we go. Hello, everyone. We are... Here in Atlanta, in uh, well near the Perimeter Mall area, for those of you who are familiar with the Atlanta area, I got uh, contacted by Robert Zwerdling about a couple weeks ago, or how long ago? A, a while ago, and he said he was going to be here in Atlanta to do several things, visit the uh, Delta Museum. He's going here to uh, see an air show, uh, the Atlanta Air Show, Air Dot Show, uh, at Falcon Field. And uh, saw the Blue Angels today. Yeah. So um, anyway, he said, I'm going to be here. If you're, if you're available on Saturday or Sunday, um, let's get together. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll have dinner. And so I said, yeah, let's do that. So here we are at the Cheesecake Factory uh, and at the Perimeter Mall. And um, one of the gentlemen that you've heard me talk about before, in fact, you've probably heard his voice, uh, but uh, how long ago was that? Was that about three years ago that we uh, went to uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, uh, an alumni weekend, and I was his guest that weekend, and you'll remember that he took me all around. I just got the grand tour of uh, the VIP uh, Embry-Riddle uh, tour, and so this his name, Peter Biondi, and uh, he is right here uh, sitting across from me at this table, so we're going to start with Peter. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I, sometimes I, I watch uh, Captain Jeff, so I've known him, for, I think, for about f uh, four years. So I met him at the airport uh, a few times, so I had a chance to 
invite him to uh, go to visit Embarado University. We had a great time, and uh, so it's really always nice to to talk to him. And uh, something interesting, and I'm here with Robert, and Robert have an interesting his, uh, uh, history that. Uh, story because uh, what happens that he started watching uh, Captain Jeff and he started his own YouTube show and he already did 487 shows inspired on Captain Jeff's uh, 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 YouTube show so that's why he came to see his uh, inspiration so uh, uh, Captain Jeff was the inspiration for Robert that started his own a show and he has already 487 episodes so that's the interesting thing about Robert coming to visit his inspiration so it's a very good moment to get together but but that's it on uh, weekends I'm a volunteer chaplain at the airport and uh, I, I have a I was a professor aviation professor here at Middle Georgia College and I have a chance to meet a lot of my former students it's so cool to see the students that invested so much they are doing well and it's, it's a really good feeling to see that you invested in teaching and you see the, your, your, the things you did, you, you saw the results. So, But that's it. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Okay. Well, now, this guy, you just heard Peter talk about this guy's videos and the number of, I can't believe he's only been doing this for four years and they're already, they're, they're hitting up against 500 episodes. I'm thinking, how many do you do a week? Like once a day, something like that. I don't know. We're gonna. He's gonna. He's gonna explain this. But apparently, uh, in Brazil, uh, and maybe other places as well, Robert is quite the personality. I mean, I'm nobody. I mean, in aviation podcasting, maybe some people have heard of me here in the U.S. But Robert Zwerdling, everybody knows this guy, and I'm just honored to be here with him at the table, uh, breaking bread. And so, Robert, everybody want to wants to hear from you. So here you go. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to have you for dinner. Uh, well, I live in Brazil, in south of Brazil. It's a small city. The name is Tupandi. It's a small city with uh, 4,800 people, just this. And uh, actually, I was born in Sao Paulo, and my father was American. Uh, actually, he was born in Austria, and he got American citizenship. He was a sergeant during the Second World War. And when returning to the U.S., he started to work uh, to Lockheed. And uh, he, uh, after some years, he went to uh, Brazil to stay just two years. And uh, he found my mother. And he got married there. and. Uh, lived all his life until 2002 when he passed away. Well, I was born in Sao Paulo and uh, I am a pilot. Uh, I am a captain flying the A320 family aircraft and uh, maybe in the future I'll be flying other aircraft. I don't know yet, but uh, I'm looking for uh, the big ones. And uh, I'm also a journalist. Uh, I'm an aviation journalist and I uh, started to work uh, for aviation magazines in 1987 and some years ago I decided to to start to with the YouTube uh, channel because it's easy to 
to work with lives you know uh, uh, better that you you bring your uh, material or your work material and uh, well when you arrive at the hotel okay let's start a live or maybe we can do that in two or three days and uh, we planned this and uh, we like we had a we have a lot of uh, lives in our uh, four-year uh, history of the, our channel that's it and how well my goodness 400 and uh, more than 400 episodes yeah, uh, that uh, is because uh, two years ago we had that uh, uh, terrible year, uh, no flights, and because the uh, the the problem of pandemic, so uh, I stay at home uh, five during five months, just four flights. So it it was easy to me to to work with that and. Uh, Sometimes we had five lives in a week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. Well, tell tell us about the uh, air show that you attended today. Oh, today, yeah, Atlanta air show was amazing. Uh, it was my first time uh, looking for the F-18s flying for the Blue Angels. Incredible noise, uh, beautiful, and the A-10 was beautiful too flying with the p51 amazing what's great a uh, great time uh i loved it <laughs> very good so so nice to finally meet you in person robert uh i i think i was on his uh episode number 10 of his uh youtube show and uh he interviewed me for that so i was very honored to be a guest uh, early on in his uh youtube venture so Anyway, that's it. We're uh, we're waiting for our food. It should be here very shortly, and uh, just wanted to share that with all of you in the APG community. And now, you know what I'm going to say. Back to you in the studio. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and hi. He was talking to me. No, he wasn't talking to me. That was me. Ah, I'm so confused. Anyway, it was great meeting uh, Robert uh, in person. As I mentioned uh, early on, about four years ago, he had me as a guest on his uh, show. And uh, the, the strange thing though, it's it's not an English show, it's all in Portuguese. I had no idea what he was saying to me. <laughs> so I just made stuff up. So it's very interesting. Um, check it out. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. No, he, uh, he made an exception to his uh, Portuguese only uh, Portuguese language only uh, show for uh, the interview with me. So that was fun. Brilliant. And uh, thank you, Robert, for uh, picking up the tab and treating me to a, a wonderful dinner at the Cheesecake Factory. I keep wanting to say Cheese Steak Factory. That would have been even better, I think. Perfect. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cheesecake. Uh, yeah. Are the portions still as vast as they ever were? Pardon me? The portions in the cheesecake Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Huge. Well, it's, it's America. We, we, we <laughs> no, no, no. It's America plus, plus. Plus more. <laughs> it's yeah. an XXL America. I think that, uh, well, see, uh, Peter and I had uh, salads, and uh, so they weren't Do too they huge. serve salads? They're yeah, believe form. it or not. And then uh, Robert had the uh, chicken and broccoli pasta or something. He, that was a pretty huge Ooh, portion. But he, he uh, took care of that very handle, handily. Very so, sensible. yeah, 
anyway, so it was a good time. And then the next day uh, I was off again on a uh, three-day trip with my favorite first officer, uh, Brent. And uh, we, let's see, we were in Springfield. Well, I know, it doesn't matter. You know, we were just on another three-day trip. And um, yeah, that was uh, a good time. And uh, next uh, Monday, I'll be back out again with Brent on another trip. So we're having, we're going to have a cover good time. Art. Okay, cover art uh, for the last show. Um, why don't we go ahead and pop that up? Uh, the <laughs> the Dicky Mouse Show is uh, the title that uh, was had. Uh, I guess Nick, were you responsible for coming up with that title? I don't remember well, I think ever that was saying very much a combined effort. It was, actually. No, no, yeah. It was okay, that was a combined effort. We can't blame just you for that then. Yeah, but there were a number of elements that uh, got put in there, not just one, because uh, that aircraft is the Gulfstream one. Mm -hmm. uh, we've Disney? been talking Disney? about that. Uh, and um, we also were talking about uh, a captain who took all his clothes off uh, beside his fully clothed uh, for lady first officer. Um, so since that particular Gulfstream was uh, owned by NASA, I immediately thought of the Pioneer 10 plaque that they put on the spacecraft and fired <laughs> oh. off. Uh, so <laughs> that see. gave me the idea of doing the the uh, diagram on the side of the fuselage mm. of the naked man. <laughs> uh, and, of course, uh, the Gulfstream we were talking about on the show was at the Disney one, so there's a bit of Mickey Mouse uh, tacked on there. Um, and <laughs> in an appropriate place. In an appropriate place, quite right. And the show titles on that plaque as well, sorry, show number, uh, but of course being uh, the discovery thing, we it's had to put it little, in code, it's so it's dashes. Lines. Uh, you'll see rows of dashes. Oh, and I actually got it. Oh, you worked it out now. Oh, oh no, Liz says she finally, she actually got it. She said, and I remember yes, you guys did. having the conversation about it. And I <laughs> yeah. honestly, I'm thinking, I don't see that at all. And I was actually looking for the regular numbers in the vertical lines. Ah, and I kept okay. blowing it up, blowing it up, thinking, <laughs> why? I can't see that. It's all blurry. There's no numbers Now there. I understand. It's just the number yeah, of well, vertical number lines. Of lines. It ah. was in homage to the codes that they put when they were trying to describe the distance of the planets, et cetera. Ah. Wow. Um, anyway, uh, and of course, we'd also been talking about a Cottonwood diorama, mm -hmm. cloud diorama. Cloud. So <laughs> I had to stick a, a Cottonwood cloud in the background <laughs> oh. just for fun. <laughs> I didn't catch that either. Um, <laughs> well, now it makes right. sense because I'm thinking, why did you put that just one little cloud? There? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. I hold boxes. So Bruce. that was a bit of fun. So. Yeah, I haul boxes. Says genius. Yes, he is a genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I I have too much time on my hands. Obviously. Wow, that was great. Wow, that very very creative and uh, worthy of um, the hardest bit was addressing the lady pilot because mm -hmm. uh you know in the uh, in the actual plaque she's naked as well but of course uh, i had to put a uniform on her that, uh -huh. that was wasn't easy but there you go <laughs> naked man running through airport turnstiles going to bangkok <laughs> he's reading yes. one of the comments from our live audience uh, <laughs> yes. if you're wondering if you're or, listening to the audio only you're going what what is he murmuring yeah about? Or, or in this case he'd bang his dicky mouse oh exactly. my goodness all right i think it's coffee fun time. oh it is coffee fun time please help us <laughs> jeff smith 
Come over here and do our little coffee fun jingle. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. I'm having oh, to lift yeah. one of the uh, earmuffs on my headphones because I'm hearing Liz singing a little bit delayed. And so I had to pop one of these ear cups open so that I could hear my own voice and sing somewhat close to in time. Anyway, you don't care. Shingles doesn't care. <laughs> uh, Coffee Fun is your way, uh, many ways to support the show. Of course, feedback and... Uh, telling other people about the show and all that kind of stuff. But uh, a very important way to support the show is to do a, a, a financial contribution if you have the means to do so. A couple different ways. Uh, you can go to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee to uh, find out the two ways that we have for you to participate in the Coffee Fund Cadre. Uh, the first is the OG, the classic method. And um, other than the normal recurring contributors using that method, uh, we had no um, one-offs or whatever since the last show. But... You'll know that uh, we've been talking about Patreon for the last few shows, and uh, we didn't have any new patrons. And apparently people kind of uh, looked at that uh, little puppy dog, sad face, and thought, aw, that's really getting to me. So I'm going to go ahead and contribute, be a patron of the show. And we have four new producers at Patreon. There are four new patrons, excuse me. And they're the producer level, Jeff Newman, Super Fred Driver, uh, Donna Rose, and Curran. Now, uh, we'll go back to the previous slide, Liz. The, uh, I thought, Super Fred Driver. I'm thinking, wow, that's a weird, kind of an odd name. And I said, we know a Fred out in uh, uh, West Coast, and I don't know if he'd ever consider himself super, or he, would, he was too modest for that. And I'm thinking, hmm. And I, so I looked on Patreon, and I see the little graphic that is accompanying accompanying the uh, Super Fred Driver uh, personality, and it has a picture of a C5. So the the Super, um, what do we call the C5 again? Galaxy. Super the Galaxy. Super Galaxy. Yeah. And so that's hence, uh, the name that this anonymous person is using, Super Fred Driver. And I'm not going to tell you what uh, F-R-E-D uh, stands for, uh, but it's uh, not a um, not a uh, positive uh, reference to that particular airplane. Let me just put it that way. Anyway, and the other uh, news is that we have uh, two new executive producers. Yay! Thank you very much. That's the uh, next level up, and we have Ryan Ellingson. And uh, he's new, a uh, new patron. And Jim Faw, he's been a patron for a while, uh, uh, producer level, but he bumped it up to executive producer level. So thank you very much for doing that. And uh, Liz, make sure you keep that little uh, sad puppy face uh, somewhere yeah. so we can uh, use yes, that again. Because, you know, some, we, some sympathy. Yeah, we never patients. know. You never know when we uh, might have to use that again. So anyway, that is the coffee fund. So if you uh, want to join this great group of folks, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, and you'll have links there to uh, participate. There you go. A little bit longer coffee fund segment than normal, but had to get that. Oh, and I just wanted to personally thank all of you for your continued contributions. And many of you may be wondering, uh, wow, you're, 
like always talking about all these new patrons and stuff to the show, you know, you must be making millions of dollars. Well, <laughs> the truth of it is that it's just a, it's kind of a rolling. I mean, we have people, just as many new patrons and we have people that leave uh, for whatever reason, you know, I'm sure legitimate reasons uh, to stop control. My darn camera is going crazy there. I think I, I must've put my hand up and given one of those gestures. Okay, let me fix that. It's driving me nuts watching my head bounce up and down. Um, anyway, I've got um, a few gestures you could use, Jeff. Well, yeah, sure. well, yeah. Why don't you keep those to yourself, <laughs> Nick? Make sure people leave. <laughs> That's usually for the at the after show um, show. Um, okay, sir. But uh, yeah, uh, so I just wanted to let you know that you know we do we do appreciate all of those who have signed up to be, be patrons of the show and recurring. Uh, contributors via the classic method and uh, you, you are not forgotten and uh, for those of you who uh, have been patrons and have to leave for whatever reason that's completely understandable as well so um, just letting you know that uh, you know, we, as, as soon as we have new ones we have old ones that leave us and uh, we uh, hope everybody uh, does well and uh, maybe one of these days comes back and contributes and participates in that again all right that's all I have to say about feedback that. Feedback time. Okay, it's feedback time. Let's hit the sounder. Captain, incoming message. Okay, let's start off with this feedback from Chandrazakar. Is that the way you'd say that? Yeah. Chandrazakar. Chandrazakar. Um, he says, hello, Captain Jeff and crew. I found this on Reddit today after listening to 540 and the discussion on the possible bomb threat on the Iranian airliner over India and that Stansted being the designated airport for such situations in the UK. Uh, he uh, gave us a link to a reddit.com um, post on uh, aviation, reddit.com slash r slash aviation. And as usual, I don't have that video quite ready, so let me do that right now. Okay, so this was some uh, video, I think it's TikTok. Is that what it says there? Yeah, TikTok video. And uh, the um, audio was a little bit low, so I went ahead and uh, extracted the audio and bumped it up a bit. And now I can hit this. Um, which is why you guys have unfortunately been kept in the dark. Uh, I also sit behind uh, a reinforced bulletproof door. They asked me to stay in there, um, so I can't even come out and talk to you. Um, but you'll be pleased to know now that the police have stood down. The incident is over, and they were actually interested in somebody who was departing from a different airport on a different flight <laughs> to a different country. <laughs> It's great, isn't it? <laughs> Government conspiracy. You couldn't write it, no. Um, so I, I very much apologise what, to what's happened to you guys. So, so what has happened, um, as we entered UK airspace from France, um, air traffic control said to us that you have a credible security threat against the aeroplane and we want you to divert to Stansted and land as soon as possible. Um, and that was it. So that's what we did. I asked him to repeat that, uh, but that's what we did. So we didn't know where the security threat was, whether it was here on the aeroplane, uh, whether it was external to the aeroplane, uh, whether somebody planted something. Um, so 
we go into a, a, a full set of procedures um, to cater for this threat. Um, and that involves unfortunately not telling you guys, because if it is on board the aeroplane, we don't want to alert somebody to that. So we go through an awful, uh, a huge set of procedures and checklists and everything, which is what we've all done. Um, and here we are in Stansted now. Stansted is one of the airports in the UK which is designated for precisely this uh, type of scenario. Uh, and we're away from the term, main terminal building, as you've probably seen as well, for, for very good reasons. So that's what happened to us. We were intercepted by two typhoons as well. Unfortunately, we couldn't see them from the flight deck because um, we wanted to take some photos. I've never seen a typhoon that close. But yeah, we, we, we didn't see them, but we were intercepted by two typhoons as well. Um, so that's what happened to us. That's why we are here now. So what's going to happen next? Um, somehow, we are going to get you from this place, um, which is a long way from the terminal building, to the terminal here, uh, where you can disembark, take everything with you. Um, all the luggage will come off. Now you have a choice. You can. There are buses and taxis to take you back to Manchester if you wish. There are um, hotel rooms here in Stansted if you wish to stay here and go back tomorrow. Um, but there are people here in the terminal to help you when we get off um, to see if you want to, um, to, to for whatever you want to do. Um, unfortunately, because of all this, I'm. We're so far out of hours, and, and to be fair, the police won't let me take this aircraft back until it's been searched anyway. Um, so that, uh, that's unfortunately where we are now. Uh, that's what's going to happen next. Um, there's some discussion over whether uh, we can, I can actually start the engine and take this all the way over there, or whether it needs to be towed, or whether you need to get off here and get buses over to the terminal. So leave that one with me for a couple of minutes while I sort that one out. Um, but that's what's happened to you. That's what's going to happen next. Uh, I'm just very sorry. Um, you know, it's not how you want to end your holiday, is it? Uh, but bear with us for the next few minutes, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll get you off this thing as soon as possible. All right. I thought that was an excellent example of great communication. That captain coming out talking in plain language and being out, not just from some place, you know, through a speaker system, you know, hiding up in the cockpit. He came out and, you know, presented himself to all of the passengers and explained uh, very well exactly what happened and why they couldn't say anything at the time. And they weren't really completely sure what was happening either. Um, and um, Chandra Sarkar uh, said, the captain does a really good job of communicating the situation to the passengers. I like the bit about the typhoons intercepting the plane, but that they could not see them. And regarding the two airports that were offered to the Iranian airliner, uh, that was the one that we were talking about on our show a couple of shows ago. Um, Chandigarh and Jaipur, uh, both are fairly close to Delhi. These are smaller cities with a runway length greater than 10,000 feet with 140 nautical miles within 40, 140 of the uh, Delhi airport. The place was actually very close to Jaipur as, uh, I guess the plane, I think, was actually very close to Jaipur as per the flight radar track when the threat was received. Jaipur is about 140 nautical miles southwest of Delhi. Anyways, love the show. Appreciate all the work you and the crew do to get us this great show every week. And then that um, image again, he was showing uh, that uh, Iranian airliner, um, you know, the flight track and uh, the 
the cities that were being considered for uh, diverts um, in India. And uh, anyway, very, um, very timely. And, uh, and as Nick mentioned, that there uh, are at least one or maybe a couple of places in England or in the UK that are um, established for, you know, dealing with this kind of a situation. And one of them you mentioned was Stansted. And there you go. There's a, an example a breaking news story. of uh, one that uh, was diverted there and uh, the captain doing great, um, great uh, public relations for explaining what happened. And I haul boxes in our uh, live show here is a developing story. Newark-bound Emirates flight forced to divert to Athens over claims the CIA wanted a terrorist, or a CIA wanted terrorist is on board. It's not known whether anyone was taken in, into custody. Thank you, Ihall Boxes, for that breaking show. news. Yeah, perhaps we'll be talking about it on the next show. We'll, we'll have to see. Anyway, uh, anything to add, uh, Nick? What did you think, uh, or Captain Nick, uh, of this captain and his demeanor and his, his uh, great... Uh, PR. Yeah, perfect, really. Uh, and, you know, if you have the wherewithal to do that, do it, do it exactly like he did. So uh, I think it's really nice uh, effort coming out, although on a wide body, you know, <laughs> you're know, you not going to get to see all your passengers. You're going to see a portion of them. But um, at least, you know, they, you're making a, a real effort. Uh, and uh, just to explain in plain language what's going on, uh, and people are surprisingly sympathetic once they understand the situation. Uh, they know it's not in your control at that point when you're uh, forced to divert for uh, a threat. Uh, then um, you know they know they understand then how serious it is, and it it really does calm the situation. Now people are at their most agitated when they're they're starved of information. Uh, and the more you can give them in, in just a straightforward ma manner without compromising the actual safety precautions that you're required to take, because a lot of those procedures are restricted, you know, they're confidential, um, then, but you'll, you know, just, just tell them basically as much as you can, uh, and you'll be surprised just how receptive they are. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you got a round of applause after that because people feel relieved. They now know exactly what's going on. And, uh, you know, that, oh, right, okay, now I understand. Thank you very much indeed for doing that. Just hiding in the cockpit and, you know, letting everyone go off on board, uh, leave on buses or whatever, still without a clue as to what happened, just leaves people frustrated, annoyed and frustrated. So you can do so much for the uh, your company and uh, just for aviation in general by taking his attitude. I loved it. Yep. Well said. And so true. When, when you don't provide information to your passengers, they're going to make this, they're going to make up stuff. And oh, yeah, absolutely. you would not believe some of the cra crazy things I've heard sitting in the back thinking, <laughs> if they just pick up the PA, inter you know, the, the handset and start talking to these people, they wouldn't be coming up with all these crazy ideas about what's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, exactly it's just, right. it's, it's, a, it's people are in a stressful situation flying anyway right and so the imagination just runs right uh, and you and it's up to you to realize that and do your best to just keep them on the straight and level 
Yes. It's hard sometimes when you're up there, you know, in a hermetically sealed <laughs> um, vessel. Oh, oh, shoot. I'm putting my hand up again, and now my camera's going to do <laughs> crazy things again. Darn it. Wow. Okay. Can I get it to stop? No. Okay. I need to figure out a way to deactivate. I don't know. It looks great. Yeah, <laughs> Chasing you around the roads. Anyway, <laughs> uh, thank you for sending that in. It was uh, really nice to see that uh, great example of uh, uh, public relations and PAs and that kind of thing. All right. Uh, let's move on uh, to this item here from, it's item four from Jonathan. And he says, Dear Captain Jeff and crew, just browsing Twitter today and saw a tweet from the National Weather Service's Aviation Weather Center. And this was, let's see, how long ago was that? Uh, that was the 10th, uh, the tw oh, uh, October 26th. Mm -hmm. And uh, at flight level 030, which is 3,000 feet, basically. And uh, the PIREP says, um, well, there's a whole bunch of letters and numbers that I don't understand. But uh, the, at the very end, in plain English, it says, pilot said, almost flipped over. <laughs> so, um, Yikes. I'm thinking that was probably uh, a light aircraft. I'm not sure what kind of well, airplane. I've, I've heard of pilots flipping the bird, but I've never heard of them flipping it over. <laughs> I don't understand that. Oh, you know what? Severe did, turbulence. Yeah, it was severe turbulence. And uh, I did look. I, I did do a little bit more research. I'm just scrolling down here. I found a, a tweet that said um, one of the people said, "Is there any way to tell what sort of aircraft made the report?" Like, was this GA aircraft or an airliner? And then uh, James Carlson says it was a Rockwell Commander, which is a GA aircraft, four-seat, single-engine piston, nice performance, uh, high-performance plane. Anyway, yeah, uh, you're going to likely experience uh, a, a much uh, severe, more severe uh, condition being a light aircraft than uh, in an airliner. You know, the bigger, uh, the, the less you're going to feel... Um, but you can still feel um, severe turbulence in airliners as well. <laughs> uh, in fact, let's go on with Jonathan in Minneapolis. Uh, he says, uh, and this wasn't an, over an ocean or a pole or somewhere where you might expe expect extreme weather. This was northwest of Cincinnati. Makes me wonder, what was the worst turbulence you've ever experienced and where? No light chop, please. Just the real stuff. The good stuff. The good stuff, yeah, from uh, Jonathan in Minneapolis. Captain Nick, what was the worst uh, experience that you recall experiencing? I, I think I've mentioned this before. Actually, it was on a check ride, and I was uh, heading out to uh, Newark, uh, and the first officer hadn't pitched up, so the check officer was sitting in the first officer's seat beside me, and uh, we headed off across the Atlantic, and uh, we knew that there was uh, a jet stream to the north of us, uh, with severe turbulence, but it's it must have moved because our track down across the Atlantic, and you you know you can't just meander around. You've got to stick to your tracks very accurately. Um, must have been right in the core of this. Uh, well, not in the core actually, on the edge of this jet because that's where the worst turbulence was, and we hit severe turbulence, uh, and um, it lasted for a good thirty minutes, and we. Eventually, we, we we got hold of air traffic. We uh, obviously had to reduce speed to turbulent speed. Uh, we could we we're having trouble speaking 
uh, on the radio because we were being jolted around so much. Our voices were becoming illegible to air traffic and we're using HF radio and that's not good oh, at the best of yeah. time. Uh, everything's flying around. We've, with the, you know, the cockpit's covered in food and coffee. Um, and um, everyone, all the cabin crew is sitting down. Obviously, everyone's strapped in. Very luckily, uh, we had enough warning to get everyone strapped in before we hit the worst of it. Um, uh, so we try to get a reroute, uh, and that is it's a procedure, and it's it's a complicated procedure because it involves a lot of latitude and longitude coordinates, uh, and. Um, we got the guy, the guy organized us a reroute that moved us 60 miles south, uh, which was basically onto the next track. Um, but I couldn't write down, none, neither of us could write down the coordinates because literally our handwriting was just scribble because every time we tried to write, the, our hands flew across the, the paper page. Um, so I said, right, you're going to have to do it again and, and slowly, and I will try and type it in. And I was literally working two-handed with one hand holding down the hand that I was trying to press the buttons with, and very slowly we fed in each of the coordinates, and it took us like 10 minutes to do that. Uh, and then we activated the new route, and uh, we moved off, and as soon as we got about 30, 40 miles south, uh, it calmed down, uh, and wow, that was just amazingly painful. I mean, we changed height, we changed speed, we eventually changed track, and that fixed it. Uh, and I thought, well, that, you know, that's sometimes you expect something to go wrong during a check ride, but I thought, well, that's it. You know, we, we've had our event, but uh, I, little did I realize that um, on the way home, we were going to be uh, faced with six inches of snow on the airplane oh, <laughs> because <no>. snowstorm <laughs> had come through Newark. And because um, I'm with the Czech pilot here, we, we, we got ramp checked by the FAA before we uh, uh, pushed back, which was uh, an experience. Um, and, uh, you know, we established that he was there to observe the de-icing procedures to make sure everyone was doing what they should do. So I very carefully briefed the ground engineer um contract man uh, about what we wanted and we were type one to clean the aircraft type four to give us an anti-ice layer um and um we pushed back and we got dragged into position and then the the trucks came and um afterwards because uh, we are um, remote they can't get into the cockpit they give us a a, a formal uh, indication of what they've done and uh, the guy came on the headset and he said, uh, okay, I've uh, gave you um, 2575 hot. Uh, you're all clear. You can go. And I said, uh, I thought the Type 4 was going on cold. And he said, oh, we didn't bother with the Type 4. This is the uh, anti-icing. Type 1 cleans you. Type 4 protects you. This was the protection layer I was expecting. He said, oh, we didn't bother with the Type 4 because it looks like it stopped snowing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm going, no, you don't, you, you don't make that decision. I, I, well, I, you know, I was like a boiling kettle at that point because I knew the <laughs> FAA were watching and I was about ready to blow my top. What are you I, people I, doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, I found another cowboy here in America. I can't believe it. Um, yeehaw. yeehaw. So, um, 
Exactly. So I said, no, 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 you've got to, <laughs> you've got to bring the trucks. You've got to bring the trucks back, put on the Type 4. Uh, and, you know, he was very reluctant, and I, you know, but I insisted. And with this Czech, Czech captain beside me, sort of hand on chin gazing across to see if I would allow the airplane to go off without properly doing the job. Anyway, we didn't. And, uh, you know, during the taxi out, we got more snow, which would have meant us having to return and do do the de-ice all over again right. if, it, if we hadn't bothered. Anyway, we So you did a proper job. We did a proper job. Yes, we did. We uh, you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T's. But Excellent. That, that's 30 minutes of severe turbulence was the worst I've ever had in an wow. airliner. But it doesn't really, doesn't really um, uh, match uh, hitting 4 or 5G and uh, uh, going low level around Scotland on a windy day when you can hear a bit of wind shear and you, you can – in a fighter and uh you know the jolts can be so hard that you literally you know despite the fact you're strapped in as tight as you can your helmet mm -hmm. hits still the, hits the yeah perspects above you and you nearly break your neck and you look down and you've just got a four or five g indication on the on the g meter and you're going wow <laughs> navigator's but he broke in his nose on the radar because he's head down. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> head banged up. Oh, man. Yeah, not much no. protection, you know, from in your face, facial area. No, I always felt sorry for him because they, yeah. they had to peer into that old scope and uh, it must be dreadful for him. So that uh, anyway. the one in the uh, in the Airbus um, did did the autopilot stay connected the whole time, or did it was it so bad that it just it gave did up? no it, it was very good the autopilot oh. stayed in. Uh, in That's fact, good. I've I've never had it kicked out through turbulence. Hmm. Um, I had to I've occasionally had to use manual throttles because mm -hmm. the order you know sometimes yeah, the going, speed yeah. changes are so great <laughs> yeah, yeah the, and the throttle engines auto throttle is slow to catch up and it gets out of phase mm -hmm. and 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 then you're going whoa this is too exciting now so i take manual control of the throttle sometimes just set a mean rpm and just uh you know manage it uh, yeah. manually which is a lot easier wow well thanks for sharing that and uh, you we have heard that before but you know there are a lot of new people that watch the uh, watch the show or listen to the show so <laughs> one and of my, I, one and of my few, few wall stories <laughs> yeah uh well, I, i'm sure you have more than just a few you know, we know that from the uh, raf form 414 volume whatever <laughs> yeah. um nick camacho uh have what's the worst that you've experienced uh probably you know i had back when i was in california i had a couple of uh scenarios where I was out and about flying the Luscom, um, in and around the Sierras and just such light wing loading and all the turbulence associated with the mountains. I probably had two or three instances of getting stirred up pretty good in that airplane. Mm -hmm. Did you ever like flip the airplane over or anything like that? Nothing that nope. bad? Okay. Nope. Cause that you is know, one the of the, uh, go ahead. I was going to say the fortunate part of that airplane is you're, you're moving real slow. Um, yeah. So the, the bumps are still, um, feel significant, but when, when you're not moving as fast, there's not as, there's not always as much, yeah. um, risk to the airframe. The, uh, the lighter the airplane, the more you're going to experience those effects and the faster that the airplane's going as well. Um, mm -hmm. you're going to experience a greater amplitude of, uh, turbulent air, um, Mine was really associated, the worst that I could recall uh, was associated, not like Nick's story up at cruise altitude, but it was 
um, actually coming in for landing in Atlanta on uh, 8 right, and it was associated with a pretty severe wind shear and, uh, and, a, and a, a very strong thunderstorm that we had to uh, we had to kind of fly through and get to the other side before we could. And, and one of the, I was going to say to when we were talking about Nick and the Lescombe, um, and I asked about, you know, the airplane, you know, flipping over or basically one of the definitions of severe turbulence is the aircraft is at times out of control. In other words, no matter what you do, <laughs> it's, it, it, you're, you're along for the ride. And that is scary. Now, I'd say what I experienced was probably some pretty heavy moderate but it felt pretty severe to me. But it and, and the airplane was, in a way, not being controlled by us. But I do the thing I really remember mostly was the fact that trying to look at all the instrument uh, engine instruments and and um, pitostatic instrument every all the instrumentation on the panel in front of me, I could not see anything. It was all just ju jumping up and down so quickly that it was just a blur. It was just like, I knew there were instruments up there, but I couldn't tell what they were telling me. And I was just hanging on for dear life. And man, that gets, that gets your Scary. heart pumping and your adrenaline, adrenaline flowing for sure. Yeah, I don't think people realize that on a, a long, thin fuselage, the, the two worst places to be are in the back galley and in the cockpit <laughs> because the fuselage is going to flex. And when the best place to be is actually over the wings or in the center of the fuselage, uh, near the center of gravity, because that's actually going to move up and down less. Uh, yeah. uh, on the 340, we we had such a long fuselage. Very impressive. Uh, and it's only quasi-stable. Um, I forget what the proper term was. And otherwise, it flexed up and down all the time. The cockpit could flap up and down like nobody's. But it's not quite as bad as the back galley. The girls used to go flying in the back galley if uh, they didn't sit down quick enough. But you, you were getting the worst of it often in the flight deck. Yeah, it's like an end of a moment arm or whatever they call that. Yeah, you know, like yeah. Getting exactly. whipped around. <laughs> it's not yeah. good. Yeah, I always feel sorry for the flight attendants. You know, a lot of the, especially the wide body aircraft, have galleys in the very back of the airplane and, and some narrow bodies as well, like the 7.5 and I guess the A321. Um, and yeah, that's, as you say, that's the word. Not only is it affected by turbulence the most, but uh, especially in uh, engine, wing mounted engine airplanes. In the tail, the uh, the side to side um, uh, oh, yeah, yaw of the airplane is really yeah. amplified as well back there. It's crazy. Okay. Um, Just under ten minutes till okay. flight tail. Thanks, Liz. Uh, we're going to go with uh, this next one, number five from Tom, uh, APG team. Hello, my name is uh, SFO Tom. I grew up in San Mateo, which is located on the approach course to runways 28 left and 28 right at San Francisco International Airport. I've been watching air traffic in and out of busy SFO all my life. As kids in the 70s, we would ride bikes to the airport and spend time on the observation deck, roaming the terminal and even talking ourselves onto aircraft that had just finished disembarking passengers. That was way before the uh, enhanced security procedures, obviously. Uh, we would pick up newspapers and empty cigarette packs from foreign countries before the cleaning crews began their work. Those were the days. When I was a teenager, I began monitoring tower, TCA, and ARTCC frequencies using a VHF airband scanner. I became quite familiar with radio communications between pilots and ATC. 
A few years later, I had the opportunity to tour the Oakland Center facility in Fremont, California, which was a real treat. Being able to actually talk to the men I heard on the radio and having them explain how transponder codes helped identify the blips on their radar scopes was amazing. Before leaving, I asked for and was given uh, huge airspace blueprint-like posters of the West Coast, which were on my walls for many years. Also, on Saturday mornings, I would watch a general aviation ground school broadcast from local community college, CSM, entitled An Introduction to Flying. This just added to my interest in aviation. Later, I gained acquaintance with guys my age who trained and became pilots, uh, flying out of San Carlos, a nearby general aviation airport. It was not long before I became their right-hand seat passenger who helped with fuel costs as they logged hours. I loved it. I also got an introductory flying experience from an instructor who ran air tours out of San Carlos Airport. I flew his Piper Warrior from left-hand seat once after we were airborne. Uh, being a roller coaster enthusiast, it was absolutely thrilling for me to create a low-level motion rush myself with the aircraft. Never got around to actually uh, actual pilot training because I was very much involved working in the printing industry, which I found myself at the top of my field in the 1990s. So more recently, I came across the Airline Pilot Guy podcast on Audible this past summer and listened to the three-hour shows every week. It is fascinating for me to hear airline and aircraft conversations. Some topics are a bit above me, but for the most part, I understand and enjoy the informal discussions of often serious issues inherent to the aviation world. I decided to write the APG team this message to make sure you know uh, your show is appreciated by more than airline crews, GA pilots, and tech people. Us common aviation enthusiasts love to listen in as well. Keep doing what you're doing. My best to you all, SFO Tom. Thanks, Tom. That was great. And you know what? I, you know, I've never done a demographic survey, but I would bet that the largest group I'm one. of people, yeah, Liz is saying I'm one, the largest group of people that probably listen slash watch our show are people like you who aren't really directly involved in the aviation industry or are not pilots, flight attendants, whatever. Um, who are just, you know, aviation enthusiasts, uh, av geeks, as we like to call you. And uh, yeah, that's uh, so nice, though, to hear that from uh, our listeners. And thank you for introducing yourself and giving us a little of a history of, uh, you know, how you became enthralled with uh, aviation and... Uh, and Maybe you can you know. connect with Tim Van Ram and some Yeah, that's right. Uh, Liz is saying, you know, we have some... Uh, in fact, there's a Facebook group called the uh, APG, what is it called, Liz? West Coast, West Coast APG. APGers. Uh, you should check that, that out and ask to become part of their group. Uh, we have several people out there in uh, Northern California who uh, have meet up every once in a while, and, um, and some are pilots, some aren't. Uh, it's just a whole cornucopia. In fact, I would imagine that probably the majority of the people in the West Coast APGers are not directly involved in aviation but I'm, I'm just guessing there but anyway. i'm pretty sure tim van ran who's in the chat yeah. room mm -hmm. is uh yeah. a, a lead member that's of true group yeah uh connie connie and uh fred sampson and uh, of course tim van ram you ever Used heard of to that be guy jan sears, but uh, he's yeah jan yeah. sears is uh is is in the middle well we played some of his audio feedback there. recently and uh yeah 
You're you're welcome, Tim. I mean, you guys are uh, are great, and I encourage anyone listening. If you happen to be in an area like Syracuse, New York, let's say we ha- I know mm-hmm. of a few people up there who uh, listen to the show, and uh, all around the country, you know, there there are like minded people who listen to the show, so they're kind of Lots affected of crazy people by everywhere. yeah yeah the syndrome, uh, sadly. <laughs> uh, but yeah. you know, you might be a good uh, what do they call that a support group. Um, oh. You could call yourselves a APG support group in That's whatever right. city. My uh, name for, is Tim, and I'm form a group APG. on Facebook, and then uh, get together and and have fun and talk aviation and make fun of us. You know, it's all part <laughs> yes, of it. Please do. Yeah, and, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to get meetups organized. And yeah. uh, if we can get there, we will. Yeah. By the way, uh, I love that you mentioned uh, Oakland uh, because that airport, in fact, San Francisco as well, comes up in today's plane tale. So oh. have a listen now. Well, well, we're ready to go. Uh, it, a lot Jeff of it involves the West Coast up there by San Francisco. See, I didn't call it San Fran. Did you notice that? I did notice that. And especially <laughs> the people that live in that Bay Area probably noticed as well. Yeah, I've been told <laughs> of enough times. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Great segue. Um, it is now time for our plane tale, the old pilot's plane tale. And this week it's entitled Sailing Off to Hawaii. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, sailing off to Hawaii. There's a hot spot in the Earth's mantle that moves northwest at an impressive rate of 32 miles, just over 50 kilometers, every million years. The tectonic plate that's given rise to this particular underwater volcano is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and tens of millions of years ago, magma burst from beneath the ocean floor to form mountains that reached up towards the surface. It took many eruptions to span the distance, but eventually the tip of those gigantic basalt pinnacles broke the surface over six miles, 10,000 metres, from where they started and the birth of the Hawaiian archipelago had begun. Polynesian settlers found the islands and made them their home, and named the largest Oahe. Europeans came to the islands, the most famous being Captain Cook, who visited them twice, the second ending in his death when he tried to recover a stolen boat. By 1810, the islands were an independent and internationally recognised kingdom until a coup d'etat led by the U.S. minister to Hawaii and backed by U.S. troops overthrew the royal family, which resulted in the islands being annexed by the United States in 1898. Hawaii became the most recent state to join the Union in 1959 and is now the third wealthiest. Following its annexation, Hawaii became an important naval base for the U.S. Navy, so it's hardly surprising that they should be the first to attempt a flight from the U.S. mainland to the island. Aviation had already arrived at the islands in 1910, courtesy of Bud Mars, the Curtis Daredevil. To a great fanfare of publicity, he had announced that he would be demonstrating the miracle of flight from the Managua polo field. A couple of days before they began assembling his brand new, cumbersome, kite-like aircraft, T-62, 
tickets went on sale from the Empire Theatre and the Gunst Cigar Store. With the Curtis P-18 biplane, an odd-looking assembly of steel tubing, bamboo and wood covered in a rubberized silk was ready, the crowd started to assemble. Over 3,000 tickets had been sold, but hundreds more were standing on high ground surrounding the field for a free show. The mechanic swung the prop and the engine spluttered into life. The attending guard stood aside and Mars bumped his way across the grass field and into the air, accompanied by a roar of approval from the crowd. A climb to 500 feet and the flimsy flying machine was turned around before coming back to land. His arrival back was greeted by champagne. Mars declared the test flight a success and christened his machine Skylark. More flights were accomplished and Mars dropped leaflets over Pearl Harbor before diving on the polo field at terrific speed. On subsequent days, more crowds came, but most watchers avoided paying for tickets by standing on the rocks that overlooked the event's location. He would go on to take his flying show to the Far East, but Bud Mars left Hawaii a bitter man, cursing the free onlookers, since each show that he put on there lost him several thousand dollars. Regardless, he had bought aviation to the islands. It was more important to the U.S. Navy that they should establish an aerial link to this far-flung outpost of theirs, which lay 2,400 miles from San Francisco. It was a vast overwater distance and would require exceptional navigation skills, but if successful it would become a world record. The Navy gave the job to Commander John Rogers, an experienced naval aviator who had taken part in many nascent flying projects. Indeed, as a younger man, he had been carried aloft in a man-carrying kite towed by the USS Pennsylvania. Suspended by a long cable and with his ship doing twelve knots into an eight-knot wind, Rogers got to a record four hundred feet where he had a 40-mile view of the ocean. He took photographs, made notes, and sent signals back to the ship for 15 minutes before being reeled back in. Keen to sell their Wright flyers to the military, the Wright brothers had agreed to train a Navy pilot for free, and Rogers was the one chosen. His training complete, the first Wright biplane arrived at Greenbury Point, on the grounds of the Naval Academy late in 1911. Rogers completed an acceptance flight and the next day took off to fly the machine to Washington, D.C. He circled around a thunderstorm and then performed flybys of the Army Aviation Camp at College Park before heading down the Potomac, overflying the Army War College on the way. Arriving over the Capitol, he flew around the Washington Monument for 15 minutes before landing near the White House and greeting naval colleagues. At the time, this was by far the longest and most successful naval aviation flight achieved. Fourteen years later, Rogers would be given the Hawaii task. 
As early as 1923, the Navy had submitted plans to circumnavigate the world using naval aircraft, but they had nothing with sufficient range to accomplish the task, so it was dropped, although the Trans-Pacific leg was seen to have real merit. It was decided to develop aircraft capable of a flight to Honolulu at least. They settled on a modified PN-8, designed by the Naval Air Factory and built by Boeing, and called the PN-9. It was a sleek-looking biplane, with an open cockpit, a flattened hull with large chines that ran back behind the wings, and was powered by a pair of V-12 Packard 1A 2500 liquid-cooled engines mounted in between the wings. The hull was all metal, but the rest of the airframe was wood and fabric. When the PN9s were ready, they were tested, and one flew for a seaplane endurance record of 28 hours and 35 minutes. All was ready, and the aircraft were shipped to San Diego. Plans were made for the route to be covered by guard ships at 200-mile intervals, which would make heavy smoke by day and use searchlights by night in case of ditching and to aid navigation. Three aircraft were there, but only two could be used since the third wasn't prepared in time. One would be commanded by Commander Rogers and the other by Lieutenant Snoddy, each with a crew of four. Final modifications were made, and after a few days of delay for weather, the sealed barographs were put on board, Rogers cast off and started his takeoff run. He failed to get airborne at his first attempt, so taxied around for another go. In the meantime, Snoddy got his PN9 into the air and set course, shortly followed by Rogers well below him. The two weren't going to be together for long, one of Snoddy's crew spotted a small stream of blue smoke leaking from the left engine. The mechanic crept carefully out onto the wing and confirmed that they were losing oil, and 25 minutes later, the oil pump, starved of the engine's lifeblood, gave up. The oil pressure of the big 2,500 cubic inch engine fell inexorably to zero, and with a heavy heart, Lieutenant Snoddy landed. Alighting on the open ocean, they used the good engine to taxi towards the nearest guard ship, and at one in the morning they were spotted by the USS William Jones and taken into tow. Alone now, Rogers continued on through the night, a bit concerned as his left engine was also giving trouble. The exhaust flame, clearly visible, through the short stack of exhaust, was glowing yellow rather than the usual blue. It was also using twice as much oil as the right-hand engine. He mulled over the problem, but before they even reached the halfway point, he had realised that their fuel consumption was too high and Hawaii was beyond them. The engines weren't running efficiently and the tailwinds that they expected had failed to appear. He wasn't too worried, though. He planned to land beside a guard ship and take on more gasoline. So far, navigation hadn't been a problem, and he had found each of the ships marking the route. 
1,400 miles into the flight, he passed the USS Reno, and he calculated he had enough fuel left to reach the USS Aroostook 400 miles away and still have a 40-minute reserve. Since leaving San Francisco, the radio compass bearings from the ships had been a bit erratic, but good enough to fly a course. Now he had to be sure to pinpoint the Aroostook accurately. The weather wasn't helping either, as rain squalls made spotting the ship difficult. They passed the USS Farragut okay, but Roger's dead reckoning was showing them north of the correct track. However, the radio bearing from the Aroostook indicated that they were actually south of track. Rogers passed the place where the ship should have been and saw nothing. He began to search north, looking for it, until his thirsty engines spluttered to a halt, and he was forced to land on the open ocean. Of the rations on board, twelve ham sandwiches, ten quarts of water and two of coffee remained, in addition to three pounds of hardtack and six pounds of canned corned beef, brought along for just such an emergency. In the morning, when the sun crept over the horizon, they were still alone on the water, so they set to work to effect their own rescue. The lower wings were being damaged by the weight of water breaking over them, so they stripped off the cloth covering, jury-rigged sails and set course for the islands. The addition of lee boards made from the metal floor plates allowed them to sail only 15 degrees from the wind. Sadly, since their landing, the transmitting side of their radio set had ceased to function, so all they could do was listen as the search for them began. Whilst the PN9 sailed on at a mighty two knots, the search began to intensify under the direction of Aristook's commander. The USS Langley hurried up from the east and her aircraft flew daily missions over the adjoining waters. Submarines and patrol planes from the Hawaiian Islands joined in and even a squadron of destroyers returning from Australia covered the areas south of the islands. For nine days the combined efforts of the searching vessels proved fruitless, until the submarine R-4 spotted the PN-9 bravely sailing along some 450 miles from where it had been forced to land. Everyone on board was in good condition, despite having run out of food and water some days before. The submarine was able to tow them to the outer reef of Kauai, whereupon the harbour master and his daughter rode out to guide them through the jagged rocks and into the safe waters. Despite the failure of their flight to achieve the goal set for them, the news of the safe arrival reached the Navy Department and a flood of messages began arriving from agencies of the government, local officials of all sorts, foreign governments and individuals. The first wave of congratulatory telegrams was followed by invitations to appear at civic functions all over the nation. Subsequent reports on the attempt concluded that, despite the crew's best efforts, the real failure was the inability of the plane to reach the efficiency attained during the earlier test flight. If it had, Commander Rogers would in all probability 
have achieved his goal despite the other adverse factors, and the Navy would have proved its ability to fly to Hawaii as well as sail there. It wasn't until two years later that another serious attempt was made to achieve this journey, prompted by Charles Lindbergh's successful solo transatlantic flight earlier in the year. Following his daring feat, a rash of long-distance record-breaking flights were tabled, one of which was the Dole Air Race, proposed by a pineapple magnet, James D. Dole. He announced a prize of $25,000, some $400,000 in today's money, for the first person to fly a fixed-wing aircraft from Oakland in California to Honolulu in Hawaii. The publicity attracted a number of entrants, but the army managed to lay a wet blanket on the proceedings by completing the flight only a month after Dole posted the prize. The attempt had been months in the planning, and it was by coincidence that it occurred just after the competition was proposed. Stationed at McCook Field in Dayton, Ohio, 2nd Lieutenant Hegenberger was an MIT-trained aeronautical engineer established in the instrument branch to study ideas in air navigation. Posted to Hawaii, he persistently submitted requests to be allowed to attempt the record-breaking flight, but was continually refused. It wasn't until he returned to McCook that he was authorised to plan the flight using radio beacons as a navigational aid, thereby demonstrating how to navigate from a big landmass to a tiny island. Flying the three-engined Atlantic Fokker C2 trimotor, named the Bird of Paradise, with Lieutenant Maitland piloting, Hegenberger navigating, and a crew of three, they took off from Oakland Airport, crossed the Golden Gate Bridge, and headed out over the ocean. With the Chrissy beacon behind them, they soon lost their beacon guidance when the onboard receiver failed. So they continued on using dead reckoning and drift readings that became nearly impossible when the cloud cover increased and they lost sight of the sea. Halfway through, they tried to have lunch from the food put onto the Fokker but concluded that they had forgotten it. They merely couldn't find it, since it was actually hidden below the navigator's plotting table. Using a mixture of sun and star shots, Hegenberger found that they had drifted well north of track and needed a 90-degree turn to find their destination. Maitland took some convincing, but after making the turn and completing 23 hours in the air, they saw the beam of the Kilauea Point Lighthouse, only five degrees left of the nose. In darkness and dreadful weather, the story of how they fumbled their way through the mountains of Hawaii to Wheeler Field on Honolulu is remarkable in itself. All that needs to be said is that they were the first to complete the flight. The official history of the United States Air Force says it all. The flight tested not only the reliability of the machine, but the navigational skills and the stamina of the two officers as well. For had they strayed even three and a half degrees off course, they would have missed Kauai and vanished over the ocean. 
of the Doll Air Race, despite the flight lacking the record-breaking prominence, 15 were given starting positions. Two were disqualified, two withdrew, and three aircraft crashed before the race, resulting in three deaths. Eight aircraft eventually participated in the start of the race on August the 16th, with only two successfully arriving in Hawaii. The winner was Arthur Gobble and William Davis in a Travel Air 5000. Of the six unsuccessful aircraft, two crashed on takeoff, two were forced to return for repairs, and two went missing during the race. One of the repaired aircraft took off again to search for the missing participants several days later and also vanished over the sea. All in all, six aircraft were lost or damaged beyond repair and ten lives lost. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> I, you, your ability to tell a tale or to weave a tale. What is it? Uh, oh, Spin man. a yarn. Spin a yarn. There you go. Is, <laughs> is amazing. Because I looked at a lot of this information that you just presented in the Hawaiian.gov archives and that kind of thing. And you made it really come to life, Nick. Uh, thank you. Well, <laughs> so kind of you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was a fascinating story. I mean, who would imagine those tiny islands would have uh, had this, uh, you know, sort of background uh, of aviation mm -hmm. uh, with um, <laughs> poor, this poor chap there who thought he'd make a lot of money uh, bringing in the first aeroplane to Hawaii. And, of course, everyone cheated him <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> by standing on the hills instead of paying for tickets. I thought that was great. Uh, and uh, and I love the fact that you know the Navy had a go at doing this thing, which was important to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Army, uh, later to become the United States Air Force, thought, oh, oh well, you you didn't do it very well. <laughs> yeah, talking about a smack in the <laughs> We're face. We're going to show you how to do it. <laughs> yeah, let, let us show you how to do the uh, the sailing stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, the. Um, the story uh, of uh, once they found that lighthouse, you know, uh, and then started trying to get in, the weather was atrocious. And there's some really high terrain uh, amongst the Hawaiian Islands. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were scudding around in sort of 500-foot cloud base in a dreadful weather, really dreadful weather. And the fact that they actually found Wheeler Field without crashing was quite remarkable. So, uh, I, you know, take my hat off to them. They did a really good job. They did. They did. And I'd like to know what an aroostic is uh, for. What do you use? What do you uh, use? An aroostic, yes. I, I... That sounds like uh, so something you, in Australia, like a stick that you uh, yeah. beat kangaroos you, with. Yeah, uh, you hit, hit roos with it. So <laughs> I guess it would be probably a... Um, Oh, you know, uh, boomerang. Would ah, that be right? That's oh, yeah. what it is. I don't know. Micah, main man, Micah, you should know this because it's, uh, what did he say? It was named for something north of uh, place in North in Maine. Maine yeah. A place in uh, northern Maine. Yes, it is. Apparently it's a county. It's, uh, but what the, I mean, the county is probably named after the original native name, yeah? Oh, uh, old probably. Native, oh, there uh, you go. He says a Mimac tribe. No, Mic -mac. that's Mic -mac. not right. A it's, Mic -mac it's, it's a boomerang or a kangaroo stick. Uh, and uh, the Mic Mac tribe are people who use fake um, apple 
computers. So uh, <laughs> they, they've made an island, the Mic Macs. Or it could be Mic Mac. Uh, M-I-C, you know, like a microphone. So maybe. Oh, could, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they made yeah. microphones for Macintosh computers. Brilliant. Way anyway, thanks very much, Jeff, for uh, yeah. uh, pointing that me towards that. Oh, it's not me. Fun. It was it was uh, it was a Mike Sullivan, uh, the uh, yeah guy Michael. That, uh, but I wouldn't have yeah. spotted it because, uh, and I needed something interesting, and that was perfect. Thank you. Well, to be honest, with you, well, you're welcome. Uh, but to be honest with you, I don't go on to Slack as much as I should. And when I did uh, a few weeks back, I. I thought wow i'm missing a lot of stuff going on here and i just spotted uh it was earlier in october i think that mike uh, kind of uh alerted us to this uh to this story uh, out of interest uh, one of the reasons that uh, the uh, army air corps um weren't allowed to claim the prize was because they didn't take off from oakland uh they took off from their own their own base i think mm. <coughs> Excuse me. So they were disqualified. Oh. Oh, well. Uh, and Liz makes a good point. Our producer, director, um, you know, queen of APG, um, <laughs> says that uh, the best way, and, and because we don't always, you know, like if you send something on Facebook or Slack or whatever, it's a really good chance that we're not going to see it or see it in a timely way. Uh, send the feedback to feedback at uh, airlinepilotguy.com, and right that's the most expeditious known. way for us to see your feedback and your suggestions for plane tails and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, or if you want to get, hit me directly, then uh, yeah. nick at AP, airlinepilotguy.com. Or Nick is the problem at airlinepilotguy.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm offended. <laughs> I'm offended. That works too. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of, uh, of being offensive, uh, this next piece of feedback is from Stephen Ivey. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, now that yeah. guy is very offensive. Not him again. Yeah. Uh, he says, hello, folks. Just wanted to send you this. Uh, send this to y'all in case you want to have a discussion about single pilot transport category aircraft. Yeah, we already talked about this a little bit. But anyway, uh, McConnell Air Force Base completes the KC-46 flight with limited crew. Uh, the 22nd Air Refueling Wing flew a KC-46 Pegasus without a co-pilot October 25th to validate procedures for operating. Regards, Stephen <clears throat> Ivey. And can Talk you... about limited crew. I'm trying to see inside the cockpits of those two <laughs> fighters. I can't see any pilots in there. Well, this might be an artist's rendering or a computer-generated <laughs> uh, graphic. But yeah. it, was, it was the cl the clearest one that I could find on a very <laughs> short notice. So I thought, I'm, well, you know, nobody's going to say anything about it. Uh, except me. But I was wrong. I should have known that you would say something about it. Anyway, so uh, he also included a little graphic here. You did it. You crazy son of a bee. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, was that from um, the, oh, was it Jurassic Back to the Future? Was that, is that where that is from? No. no what is that from? No, that picture is from Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Jurassic Park. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Jeff Goldblum, right? Yes, and uh, Michael J. Fox. Wow, I Was can't believe I got Michael both of J. those right. Michael J. Fox in Jurassic Park. I'm not. I don't know. Is that Michael J. Fox? Looks like I him, but I don't think, think so. it is. I, yeah, oh. I don't recall him being in it. I don't know. I don't <laughs> hey, this is not the movie review channel or 
whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, thank you. I know nothing about this stuff. Otherwise, we'd be well below. My 50%. son, on the other hand, would be he'd know all this stuff. Um, yeah, I hall boxes says soon we'll finally be able to work from home as pilots. Yeah, just to get all settled in in that uh, lazy boy, yeah. slide that yep. little TV tray thing over. And uh, just start using a little joystick and uh, flying airplanes with uh, hundreds of passengers that are trusting you for their lives. Yeah, put your cowboy hat on, hat on and have fun. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the article here that he references says the 22nd Air Refueling Wing flew a KC-46A Pegasus without a co-pilot to validate procedures for operating with limited uh, aircrew for certain potential high-end combat scenarios. In other words, <laughs> we don't have any uh, any pilots to fly, so just go out there and uh, do what you can. This employment concept allows the KC-46 to complete its primary mission with a reduced crew complement when needed to rapidly launch aircraft with threats inbound. Because co-pilots notoriously are the ones that don't show up on time. <laughs> exactly. I, I think this defies logic to a certain extent, because if you're going into a risky situation, so uh, a combat profile where, you know, you might be engaged, the last thing you want is a, a, a lack of pilots in case the pilot gets injured, taken out, or ends up with major uh, damage and emergencies, and he's got no one to help him fly the airplane or take over from him. So I, I don't, it defies logic for me. I don't really understand this. Well, uh, our, you know, the Air Force is way behind because our Navy's already done it with no pilots in the tanker. Yeah, and no, I think that's a better idea, <laughs> quite honestly. <laughs> I mean, and particularly if uh, you as the <clears throat> fighter can uh, control where the tanker goes because you can just have it tagging on behind you. And uh, every time, uh, you know, you uh, get to where you need to plug in, it, there it is sitting, trailing along. That would be perfect. Mm -hmm. Good point. All right. If you want to know more of the details of this um, uh, proving flight, uh, mission, whatever, uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Stephen Ivey. Um, oh, he, speaking of, oh, two things. I'm enjoying a, because... Uh, Nick told me oh, like a show Guinness? or two ago Guinness that Guinness is good, is for, good you. for you. So that I thought <laughs> yes. I need to have something good for me. Right. So uh, that's what I'm enjoying here. And then also uh, he recommended a while back um, a, a drink uh, made famous by the, uh, mm -hmm. what is it called? The uh, the the bar that's near the uh, St. Oh, Andrews. Oh, the Jigger Inn. The Jigger Inn. Uh, right near, some, yeah. Uh, yeah. Port. Oh, you've got some nice port. Oh, got excellent. some port, and uh, I'm going to use the uh, family-friendly name for this drink, uh, a Guinness With. Guinness With. <laughs> exactly so, right. Cheers. Well done. Mm. It's, it is a very uh, – I, I used to find myself uh, unable to touch the floor um, <laughs> after a couple of those, so I used to be floating about two or three inches over the floor. Well, too. that's what I hope to do <laughs> Works later perfectly. on. Yeah, Very good. <laughs> and I uh, will not be picking up any flying no uh, green this slips evening. Tonight. No green slips tonight. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was what? What was the Stephen other Ivey? Thing? You were talking uh, about Stephen, Stephen Ivey. Oh, Stephen Ivey sent me <laughs> sent me a uh, tweet or no a, a message last night that said, and I I can't remember. I think it's like on Instagram uh, aviation memes, or I don't remember exactly what it what the name of the Instagram account is because yeah, you're famous. Um, you are now part of a meme. 
So are you look it up? Yeah. Look it up oh. Instagram. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll, maybe I'll share it with a, with the crew after, uh, oh, do. After yeah, we right. if, if there's a meme, is there a yume? Um, maybe, I don't know what that means. Okay. You and me. I know. I know. Me and you. Carry on. Okay. Carry on. Thank you, Liz. Number seven. She's cracking the whip again. (laughs) Sorry, Liz. We'll we'll move on. Okay. Number seven. Uh, This is from El. Do we have to do this? This is from El Spiloto. I know. Yeah. Okay. Oh, dear. All right. Here we go. Brace yourselves. He says, I hate it when the dot, 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 V-O-R dot, dot, dot. Hi, ABJ crew. Found this one in my NOTAM package, notices to air missions, uh, on a flight through China. I just have to say, I really hate it when the Fu Kang, Fu Kang, thank you, VOR is out of service. <laughs> I'm dish- going to wave the BS flag here <laughs> because I don't think Els Piloto ever reads his NOTAMs. Well, that's probably true. Yeah, you're right. They are just a bunch of garbage. <laughs> they are. Yeah, they are. Oh, shoot. Uh, here we go. <laughs> that's what NOTAMs are. They're just a bunch of garbage. That was pretty quick, huh? That was, that was pretty good. good. I have to say I'm very impressed with myself. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. I really hate it when... They, okay. Additionally maddening, I found Prague Airport felt the need to let me know about the following as written in the NOTAMs. Flock of pigeons in the vicinity of Threshold Runway 6. This leaves me so many questions. Were they just flocking by? Are they homing pigeons? Ice pigeons? Oriental rollers? And do they give no TAM riding duty any Muppet? I don't understand that part. Um, uh, yeah, do they give any Muppet no TAM riding, riding duty? duty. Is oh, the, any Muppet. Okay. <laughs> other way of putting that. All right. Um, like Muppet, like Jim Henson? No, any yeah. idiot. Yeah, well, so like we idiot. use that for uh, someone who's a bit of a twit. Oh, okay. Okay, so that, that's why I didn't really understand that, because that's okay. not something I'm familiar with. Uh, the list of I don't give a toss grows, and don't you even <laughs> dare look at Dublin, E-I-D-W. I'm not sure what that means either. <laughs> I think their no terms are probably notoriously uh, <laughs> irrelevant. They're just a bunch of. That's what NoDams are. They're just a bunch of garbage that nobody pays any attention to. Well, except Els Pilotos. He pays attention (laughs) to Yes, I'm very (laughs) impressed the fact that he spotted those. Uh, I mean, I I used to despair myself. uh, 56 pages Mm. of about, you know, six point um, capitals, tiny, tiny writing, double printed. Uh, you know, for a flight uh, for, of 10 hours or so. And you just, there's no No, you don't have 10 hours to go years. over it. <laughs> and many of them involved areas with multiple lats and longs, which you, in theory, were supposed to plot out to see if it encompassed your flight. What do you mean in theory? Stuff. You mean you did it. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> yeah, I dreadful. You did. Absolutely yeah. dreadful. I know. Dogs on runways that you'll never go to. That is so true. Those stupid things. I know. It's, you know, they are actually improving a bit. They're they're they have a long way to go. But uh, in my yeah. experience, and some of the tools we have now uh, allow for us to get no tams that are like specific to 
the approach that you're going to be flying and the runway that you're going to be landing or taking off on and that sort of thing. So it is getting better. But as I said, they have a long way to go. Yeah. So, you know, go for it, guys and gals. Number eight, Liz is telling me. Okay. Uh, I haul boxes. This is from I haul boxes. You ever heard of that oh, guy? No, really? I skipped this one. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to number nine. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, he is in our live audience. He says, Dear ABG crew, Halloween kicked off the start of the flu season. Don't get me wrong. I'm wishing all of you nothing but the very best and in, in, and in good health. But in the unfortunate event of you striking up a pathogen, what is your cue to call it quits? It sure isn't pleasant to call up the company saying that you cannot fly because of the cold. Just like calling in fatigued, it always makes me feel like a crybaby. But neither is it fun to pass on your effect, infection to a colleague, busting an eardrum or aggravating your condition as you accumulate fatigue at work. I once heard, quote, it's better be, to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than to be in the air wishing you were on the ground. Curious for your words of wisdom. Wishing you good health. I haul boxes. Wait a minute. Is he confused? He's sending this to the wrong podcast. Words of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and he's being he's being un, un, unusually nice to us. I yeah, don't I think understand. maybe he's being sarcastic. Must be a trick here. Yeah. Um, but Captain Boxes makes a, a good uh, point. Actually, um, you know, there there are lots of people who really don't take into account the ramifications of their health when they go off and I used to get really upset. I suppose a lot of it was because it was ingrained in me in the military that you never took a risk, bearing in mind that, of course, our cockpits were uh, given much less pressurization than a, a civil airliner. So, you know, the physiological effects were amplified. Uh, if we tried to fly with a bit of a sniffle, um, we couldn't clear our eyes properly or we just weren't feeling, you know, 100%. You don't want to do that when you're, you know, flying a high-performance fighter. So uh, in the civil world, I think there's a more relaxed attitude to it. But again, that that basic understanding, that basic discipline was, was often completely lacking. Um, I was very lucky in my company because there was absolutely no penalty whatsoever. If you called in sick, you didn't lose a penny. Uh, uh, so, you know, there was no excuse for pitching up uh, uh unfit to fly even if you were unsure you know that was it was just you know just being stupid if you came to work with a snivel uh, and as well as spreading it all to your the rest of your crew because you know you're sitting beside some bloke with a cold for 10 hours you're gonna get it yourself that's pretty sure so it used to annoy me enormously when people didn't take it seriously yeah the problem is in my company and others uh, like ours uh, you have a certain percentage of people, I don't know what the percentage is, hopefully a very minor percentage of the pilot group, who just think it's a right for them to call in sick like one trip a month and just drop a trip, you know, whenever it's convenient for them. And so what that causes is the company has got to go through and say, okay, well, if you are doing this all the time, then we need after a certain number of hours of um you know, uh, paying you for trips that you're not flying. Cause we, you know, get paid for the trip. Even, you know, if we call in sick, we get paid for it. It's taken from our, uh, sick leave balance. Uh, we're going to require that you show us some proof 
of why, like a doctor's uh, or some kind of a medical professional's uh, note saying what happened, why, why were you calling in sick and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, 99% of us, or maybe not quite that high, but a, a very large percentage of us are responsible people. And, you know, we don't call in sick and think of it as a way to have time off. We don't abuse it. But there's always going to be people that do. And uh, so that's the problem. And it, it's funny for me, sometimes it's like right before a vacation period or right after a vacation period, I'm really sick. And you're like really hesitant to call scheduling and say, I can't do the trip because that's just like a big red yeah, flag. That is, yeah, it was always a classic because you think, oh, they're <laughs> going to think I'm grabbing some extra days right. off because I've got some leave coming up. So that, I would imagine that that's mo <laughs> most likely the time where you're probably going to have people that probably should have stayed home and called in sick yeah. but are out there flying because they don't want that to be on their record or whatever, you know, draw attention, whatever. Um, but for me, uh, I remember going on a trip once and it was in the 720. I still remember <laughs> like the entire setting, 727 first officer were descending into Portland, Oregon. And I, my sinuses, you know, I had some congestion. I, I shouldn't have been flying. I should have called in sick, but I, I felt pretty, I felt well, except that I did, did have some, you know, congestion. And I guess one of my sinuses, sinus cavities over my um, eye uh, just wasn't opening or whatever and had that pressure. It felt like somebody was taking oh, yeah. an ice Painful. pick and just like jabbing it into my, you know, right above my eye and my forehead. And man, that Ouch. was very, very painful. And I thought, I oh, said to geez. myself after that, okay, never again. If I feel like I have any kind of congestion, I'm going to have any trouble clearing my ears or sinuses, I am not going to fly because it's just not worth it to me. I mean, just that was so painful. So, and then as you say, or as uh, I Hall Boxes says, you don't want to, if you have something that's, for me, it's, it's mostly like probably allergy related, even though, you know, I just want to say officially, I have no allergies. Uh, but, uh, you know, if it's like hay fever or, you know, whatever, that kind of, not a, not something that you not think. contagious. So, yeah, contagious. Like you feel like you can, you know, give it to someone else. Um, uh, that's usually what affects me. Um, so, but anyway, as I said, before I go on, well, nobody's going to catch what I have because it's not a cold. It's not a flu. It's not something like a virus, like COVID or something like that. But, you know, you, you, you're not a doctor. You don't know for sure. And even if you're a doctor, you may not know. Um, and you have to think about the impact that's going to have on your fellow crew members. So, and, and the company that you're flying for. You know, you bring you you down uh, a few crew members. They may end up downing many more, and that might be a a bad thing. Oh yeah, and you you go down route where on a small airline like mine, you didn't have spare crew sitting around somewhere in another continent, and your whatever you've gone off with, thinking, oh, I feel a bit rough, but I'll go anyway, develops into a proper illness, uh, and then you're completely. Stuff the airline because uh, there's no one to fly your airplane home, and uh, yeah, they've got to fly another crew out to replace you, which is often really hard to do. So you can often make the situation worse. Early, 
early oh, yeah. on in my career, I, I did that thinking, well, I don't feel very well, but I have a really super long layover in Birmingham. So I'll just like, you know, drink some soup and, and, uh, well, lots of water <laughs> and I'm, that, and I'll just go to bed and I'll sleep for 17 hours <laughs> and I'll be fine the next day. And the next day I thought, oh my God, I feel really, I feel even worse. <laughs> and I had, uh, so and on that trip, I finally said, look, I can't do this anymore. I'll get it back to where we're going, but I cannot do anymore. And they said, okay, that's good. That's good. And they were very happy that I agreed to do that. And, uh, and I, I didn't go straight home on that trip. I went directly to my, um, at, I didn't have a primary care doctor. So I just went to the guy that gives me my uh, medical, my flight medicals, my AME. And, uh, and because he's a regular, you know, clinic doctor as well. And he said, uh, uh, yeah, he did a test for strep throat and he goes, yeah, you have strep. And he said, like, it's really bad. And I said, okay, well, give me a prescription. He goes, yeah, yeah, no, we're giving you a shot before you leave. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> because you, you, you know, we can't wait for the Put pills to take down. effect. Yeah. Well, so down. Liz is saying, take your pants down. So I'm thinking, okay, no problem. It had been years <laughs> since I had a shot. And so I started, the nurse came in with a syringe and I started doing this to my arm. And she goes, uh uh. And I said, what? She goes, Pull, pull your pants down. Pull your pants down. <laughs> I hardly know you. Um, yeah. And uh, they said, yeah, you you have to do the shot thing, and then we'll give you the prescription you can do later. But And you're not going to fly until we tell you it's okay for you to fly again. I went, Excellent. Yep, yes, ma'am. Well, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you were going to say, Nick, uh, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. Captain Nick, I believe. Uh, no, I, I've forgotten. That's gone. I was going <laughs> to ask... Uh, uh, the other Nick, because um, you fly generally in uh, unpressurized airplanes, mm -hmm. you must really feel it. If mm -hmm. uh, and of course, once you've gone up uh, in an unpressurized airplane, uh, it's very hard to come back down again without suffering. If you've got, you know, a blocked uh, sinuses. Right. So, do you suffer much from that? No, but I am pretty conservative, like you were mentioning, when it comes to flying with that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and I remember, uh, you know, the one thing that comes to mind is when we were getting ready to leave in 2019, when we were getting ready to leave Paso Robles in the C-47 for the big trip, um, I... Yeah, not to be missed. Yeah, I got, uh, you know, I because I work out there, whenever I go out there, I'm usually out there for a couple of weeks. So I'll go out there and I'll work in the office for a week or two and then do whatever we're going to do with, for the airplane. And so I got out there, you know, two weeks before we we're going to leave or whatever. And after being out there for just a couple of days, um, maybe I was out there for just a week, but um, after being out there for a couple of days, I was just completely congested and backed up and everything. And, um, and we only had three or four days left until we were supposed to leave. And I'm thinking, oh, I got to get this sorted out. And I was pretty sure it was allergies um, because I didn't have any other, effects or anything. And I had just changed environments and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, I went to the store and I, uh, well, I, I went on the AOPA website and looked at all the allergy medicine that I could take and fly. And then I went to the store and <laughs> yeah, I bought all it of took it. it all. <laughs> and I took one one day and I took one the next day and figured out which one worked the best. <laughs> it was actually feeling pretty good by the time, you know, it was feeling pretty cleared out and ready to go by the time we left. So. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that worked. That was bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So I haul boxes. You're probably still in our live audience. Did we cover that one okay, or did we miss something? We'll see. There's a there's a lag here, some latency. So we'll see. Uh, Neil is suggesting uh, whiskey or vodka. I think. Yeah. Well, you know, I just had I just did some self medication, uh, Guinness, because I it's good for you. Uh, I was going to say when I have congestion, it's usually more like uh, wasabi or hot wings. Oh, oh, yeah, right. that takes idea. care of yeah. it for me. Just great. I yeah. boxes. Uh, he says, thanks for answering that so thoroughly. <laughs> okay. Again, sarcasm, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, just kind of going through some of the ones we still have remaining. Do you want to do 15, the A380? Yeah, I do. That's, video? that's yeah. what I was looking for. Thank you, Liz. Uh, we're I going do. to You're jump getting married to, yeah. I do. You know, we're both available. Okay, uh, number 15. Um, I'm not. Is where, I'm not talking to you. Oh, okay. um, You're not as tight. <laughs> we're, uh, Are you hearing the voices in your head again? I am hearing those voices in my head. <laughs> constantly. Tell them we're doing number 15. Whether we're doing the show or not, I hear voices in my head. Um, anyway, we're doing number 15. This is from Albert, and he says, A380 takeoff, first officer flying. It's a YouTube video. Okay, and I think um, somebody else sent uh, some feedback to us as well. It may have been Els Pilotos, or it could have been Gubby. And if it's not either of those, I apologize yeah, for not remembering who exactly who it, it was. Uh, but they also referenced this um, this video clip of a uh, first officer uh, doing a takeoff on an A380. And, uh, but Albert says, uh, hi all thought I'd share this short clip of a takeoff viewed from the, uh, captain's side. Yeah. The one that I saw was viewed from the other side for some reason. Anyway, I was a bit surprised how much input the first officer puts into the stick considering it's a 380 as always love your work guys and hope to catch up one day. And, uh, Albert is a virgin pit crew. Yeah, maybe oh, he knows Australia, Virgin Australia. Oh, Virgin Australia. Okay, Virgin Australia. Okay, so probably doesn't know. Okay, me. wow. Uh, so I believe I actually we're uploaded all the same this family. One. Yeah. Well, you know, we're all part of this aviation family, right? Uh, uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So we're rolling down the runway, looking straight out the runway, taking a glance down at the engine instruments. Okay, she's uh, pulling back on the side stick and lifting off. Left hand. I was just going to ask about that. Huh? Okay, this is the first officer, so it's her right hand. Where would no, you put I'm your just, left hand? She's just gripping hard with her left yeah, hand. Yeah, is, um, is that just the armrest? It is the armrest. Yeah. It is. But having said that, she's doing all right. Okay, she's reaching down somewhere to look at some screen with her left hand but she's still she's intently so this is a very shortened version of what i saw from whomever sent the other clip in to me and my concern about that you know there was a lot of movement on that stick and i've never flown an airbus uh and you know comparatively when you look at airbus flight controls and boeing <laughs> remember we had that video we did like last or a couple of episodes ago <laughs> which is a little bit um 
exaggerated. Uh, yeah, exaggerated. Uh, but but in general, it's true that when we have you know the big control yokes that we have. Uh, we they, we do move them around quite a bit, uh, where, whereas the side stick controller, I don't think it's necessary to move this thing around very much. And um, I don't know. I'm, I can't really – I know that Nick can, and he's going to uh, tell us about what he thinks about this. But my general impression of this whole thing, regardless of what she was doing with that side stick controller, is the fact that she's just – not looking up she's looking down except for that very you know doing the takeoff roll once she started rotating the aircraft i i don't think i've seen her once look up outside through the window for through the front through the front windscreen i'm thinking why you have to look there are things you know air traffic control does a good job of keeping you safe and warning you of other airplanes out there but you know there are times when they don't see something on their radar and you need to, or a bird or a balloon or something out there that they, they're not aware of. You have to be looking outside, um, not completely all the time, but every once in a while look up. You know, that that was my takeaway from this. Uh, Captain Nick, you could probably tell us a little bit more about how she is uh, actuating the side stick controller. Okay, we'll go ahead and uh, I'm going to turn the volume down and play this while you're telling us about what you think about this well the first thing i'm going to say is uh, you never double guess a pilot uh, because you're not sitting in their seat and you're not experiencing what they're experiencing so you know this is taken with that caveat um the technique of uh, sort of gluing onto your instruments is very much a um a low visibility takeoff straight into cloud technique so if i was getting airborne with you know 150 meters visibility and a, uh, a zero foot cloud base that would be my technique you you as soon as you start rotating and you're you're going to climb away you take your eyes out of the in, visual environment and just glue yourself onto the instruments and follow them um I suspect this is uh, a pilot with uh, without too many hours uh, because someone with lots of confidence and experience can spend time doing sort of multitasking and and from that point of view I say yes you can you can pitch the airplane up to the pitch attitude you need at this point just for your initial climb away and you can also look out the cockpit and you can look at the engine instruments and you basically have a, a scan. Her scan is very limited at the moment. She's tunnel vision on the attitude indicator, I suspect. Um, now, the reason for that uh, might be that in past takeoffs, she hasn't nailed the takeoff attitude. And it really is quite important. You know, I don't, I'm not sure what it is in the 380 and the 340, it was 12 degrees, unless you lost an engine, in which case you reduce that to 10 degrees. Uh, and the your rotation and your achieving achievement of that pitch is important because uh, it'll predicate your speed that you achieve um, and uh, also the height clearance for any obstacles uh, in front of you, all that. So it's important that you nail it. And then once you've uh, done the initial climb away, you then follow the flight directors because uh, SRS, which is the flight director that gives you that initial pitch guidance, will change into the more normal flight director in a short while. Um, she, uh, 
looking at her movements on the uh, stick, she doesn't nail it immediately. Um, so she has to check forward. She pitches up as she is doing now. You can see the aircraft nose start to rise and then the gear's coming up. So there's, and now she's starting to hunt for the attitude. Now, either the SRS bar is moving because, say, it could be very gusty. We don't know that. Uh, and, and the SRS bar is moving and uh, she's now hunting to follow it. But it could be that she's slightly overpitched and now she's correcting. Now she corrects too much and then she pitches up again. I don't know. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, but that is a possibility. Uh, bear in mind that the Airbus flight laws, if you stop moving the stick, the aircraft is like in a mini autopilot mode. It will hold the attitude that you've left it at. It won't move. And if the external uh, atmosphere nudges the aeroplane with a, a puff of wind, it will absorb that and should correct back. In reality, it's not that good. It doesn't correct back perfectly. But it certainly, uh, the, the, the teaching is having achieved the attitude you want, relax your hand on the stick and just use your fingertips. And if there is a minor adjustment that needs to be done, just do it gently. But the trick is achieving it and then sort of relaxing your hand and her posture and just the way she's flying the airplane makes me feel she's not quite got that stowed away yet. I, I'm, I'm no doubt she will. Uh, and I've no doubt that uh, this is, this might've just been, you know, a, a difficult day uh, mm -hmm. for her or for the aircraft of the, of the flight conditions. Can't, can't say that, but this would be, uh, there would be some teaching points from this takeoff that she could take away and then have a think about. And it's a learning process. And just bear in mind, you're never the perfect pilot when you start. And even 25 years down the road, when you retire, when I retired, I still wasn't a perfect pilot. Mm -hmm. um, no, so you, you always uh, need to learn and brush up on your techniques and make sure you're doing things right. Um, and uh, I, I just think she's in a learning curve. Uh, yeah. And um, little more to be said. She may not have, uh, she might be pretty new, maybe not a lot of experience uh, on that jet. Um, yeah, all the things you mentioned are, are so, um, so significant or so, so true. Um, you're looking outside, you know, and, and I agree with you, you know, as soon as you're in a low visibility, low ceiling environment, as soon as that nose starts rotating, you have no choice but to just be glued to your instruments because there is nothing else to look at. You look forward through the windscreen, you're not going to see anything. So that's worthless. You just stay glued to your instruments. But as you can tell in this video through the uh, the view outside the window uh, that uh, they're not in that situation. This looks like a pretty good VMC kind of uh, day, uh, visual meteorological conditions. And uh, so it may be, you know, experience related. Um, Whatever. Um, I, I mentioned to Nick when we were discussing this before we recorded today that to me, a lot of the people that are new or in the newer generation pilots or the ones that not necessarily new or young pilots, because uh, I've flown with some who have been flying for a while and are not young, who um, they fly the airplane 
not very smoothly. And I've found that usually it's because they're, they're just glued on focusing on the uh, attitude indicator and the flight director bars or the SRS system, whatever you call it on the Airbus. And they're making all these like really quick, uh, minute, jerky. Uh, jerky. jerky kind of adjustments to, to make sure that they're doing exactly what that flight director uh, is telling them to do. And it's just like, yeah, I, if you just kind of like make an adjustment, kind of look at those things as making a suggestion. Okay. The, the flight, the, the pitch bar is kind of moving down. It's probably a good idea. It knows a lot uh, that maybe your energy state is going to be, um, you know, reduced in this pitch that you have me in right now. So why don't you lower it down? But you don't necessarily have to go like really quickly push it down to get exactly where that pitch bar is, because you'll notice that when you do that almost immediately, as soon as this pitch starts coming down, that bar is going to go back up again. And as Nick just said, chasing that flight director or SRS or whatever you call it is like you're in a, you get in this PIO almost, uh, and, and you get behind and it just, if you're sitting back in the back of the airplane, you're going, wow, must be really turbulent here. You know, and it, no, it's, it's all pilot induced. And, um, it's, uh, I, I wish that I, I'm, I'm, I try not to, you know, be the guy that, uh, like says something that's going to upset somebody. Um, but I, and many times I probably should have said something like, does this feel smooth? Or, yeah, you know, I wouldn't say it like that, but that's what I'm thinking to myself. Does this feel smooth to you? And then when they put the autopilot on, I think, oh, thank goodness. Like, now, now it's I know the airplane's not going to be going woo, 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 like all this all over the place. And I'm wondering, and I'm not sure if it's that they don't sense how jerky they're manipulating the controls or I don't know. I don't know what the, what the issue is. Captain Nick, do you have any idea? I, when you're immersed in flying the airplane and perhaps you're trying to correct problems you've had in the past and not make a you know a, a mistake. Um, I think it, it does narrow. It's like your vision narrows. Uh, I don't mean physically. I mean you concentrate like you're in a tunnel, and I think you tend to lose a lot of the um, feelings that other people who aren't quite so involved in flying the airplane, they can feel what's happening. You've lost that ability because now your brain is so zeroed in on a particular task that you're forgetting what's happening on the periphery. And I think that is what happens. They, they don't feel the roughness that you feel because they're just concentrating so damn hard on what they're doing that that's just gone out the window. They, they may not even hear you if you say something because they're just zeroed in on a task that they're not doing particularly well at and they're working hard to achieve what their their aims are. Is it possible that, and honestly, it's for me and my anecdotal experience, it's mostly people that are younger than I am, or almost everybody's younger than I am, but, you know, like considerably more youthful and new generation or a couple of generations younger than me. I'm wondering, does it, I don't know, maybe has nothing to do with it. Do, do, do you think that maybe uh, Nick Camacho, that this, the people that have grown up in the video game age and world that might have something to do with it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and I also think Elaborate. a lot of it has to do with how 
um, pilots are kind of accelerated through their training, right? You know, a lot of times now you'll have people that, um, because flying is so expensive and because it's, um, so challenging to stay in that stage of, I just got a private pilot's license. I'm a VFR only pilot that you'll get people like going, whether it's going through college programs or professional tracks that, um, become a pilot and then immediately start flying with a safety pilot and building time for their commercial and building time for their instrument. And it never kind of becomes ingrained in them to look out the window because they only spend like 50 or 60 hours there. And then immediately they go into instrument training. And then from instrument training, it's multi-engine and complex airplane training. And from there it's instructor training. And, um, and I, I only say that and wonder that because I'm kind of the opposite, right? I got my license and I've done so much VFR flying that, um, when I've piddled around trying to start my instrument training, I have a hard time, you know, keeping my head in the, not necessarily in the cockpit. I mean, I'm under a hood, but you know, it's, it's a struggle for me to be looking in the cockpit or like when I moved up from the Luscombe to the Bonanza, where I had a lot more things to manage in inside the cockpit, that was challenging because I was so used to, uh, having my head outside the cockpit and, you know, it's like Nick said in that airplane, because there is not even an attitude indicator in there. You, you can fly the airplane completely with your head outside the cockpit. So yeah, I, I definitely think it's a, a, uh, background or mindset thing. And as I haul boxes says in our live audience, uh, it is exacerbated possibly from some instructors will indeed motivate their students to be on their flight director to the pixel. Others will teach you to fly through it. And maybe I'm lucky because when I started flying airplanes that have flight directors, um, especially the 727, it, it was no, the flight director system on that airplane was really a suggestion. I mean, it, you would not follow that thing. <laughs> Sometimes directly. a very, a very bad suggestion. <laughs> yeah, a very bad suggestion. So you kind of go, yeah, well, I see what you're telling me here, but that doesn't make any sense. So I'm not going to do that. And so I, I just have years and years and years of flying airplane, an airplane that that flight director system was just like not super accurate. And so I, I still remember the time that I was on the uh, Mad Dog, which the flight director system was much better and much more accurate. And, and, uh, one of the, the instructors was complimenting me on the fact that I was flying through the flight directors, the flight director bars. And I went, Oh, okay. And I was just like, I'm just doing what I do. I, I wasn't, I wasn't even aware that I was doing what he was saying, but apparently that was something that he thought was good. <laughs> so, I went, okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I meant to do that. It's just, that's my background um, now in this new world of very accurate flight director systems um, you know if you if you put that that little you know square or round whatever right there where those two bars if you're using a, that kind of a flight director system right where those two bars are crossing I mean you know you'll nail the the airspeed and all the other parameters of the flight it may not be very comfortable with the people in the back of the airplane <laughs> but you're gonna yeah. nail it gosh darn it and in the simulator that's a good thing when you're flying in an airplane you know they'll, they'll probably look at me and like going does he know we're like 
five knots or 10 knots fast or slow or whatever. And I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, if they asked me, I said, yeah, I'm aware of it, but I'm not going to make a very big maneuver to correct for it because, you know, I'm correcting and you can see that. It's just that I'm taking my time doing it because to me, smoothness is important. So Yep, my all boxes, thing on the thing. Put the thing on the thing. That's <laughs> a show title yeah. from a couple of, uh, yeah, the, the Pipper ago. thing, whatever that thing's called, yeah. <laughs> NSC-17. Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. But the point you made about uh, Asian experience, uh, of course, uh, you know, with uh, 10,000 hours under your belt, 20,000 hours, that's going to be so much easier for you. And uh, this does not look like a, um, uh, you know, someone who's been in the industry for 20 years. This looks like someone who's just joined the industry. So uh, we have to give the benefit uh, of the fact that, you know, you've got to learn these things. And it takes, because of the limited amount of hand flying we get nowadays, it takes years to build up skills that other generations would have built up quite quickly. Good point. I need to be more charitable, apparently. <laughs> no, not at all. And understand. Do you want to quickly do number perfect. 14 or do you want to wrap it up? surprised me a little bit about that video uh, was, and Nick and I kind of commented on it, is that her hand is on the armrest and it doesn't look like anybody's hands are on the throttles. No, no, you're exactly right. That is that is the correct airbus technique. Once your hands come off the throttles at V1, you don't put the, your hands anywhere near the throttles until you get to the acceleration altitude, you know, say 1,000 feet or 1,500 feet, depending Man, on what. That is so weird. Yeah, well, the trouble is that if you put your hands on the throttle, people assume you're going to move them. Yeah. And you're not allowed, you're not supposed to move them. That, that's got the correct power setting for the stage of flight. You don't move them now until you're going to retard them uh, because you're going through the noise abatement and lower the nose and accelerate and clean up. If you put your hands on the throttles before that, people think, oh, are you going to pull the throttles Something's back? Happened, you yeah. can't do that now. That's going to be really dangerous. So yeah. uh, you keep your hands off throttles. The comment I was making was that look, she looked like her fingers were gripping. Yeah. Uh, it looked like she was tense. That's mm -hmm. all. It's a bit like her hand on the stick. She's not doing it with a fingertip. She's got her hand completely gripped around the uh, side stick which also makes me think that, you know, she's not relaxed flying this. She's uh, she's a, a little bit uptight. Uh, but that's just, I mean, I'm, it's what I can glean from the, from the and video. And the fact that there I, were I like, right I don't know how many GoPro cameras were in <laughs> in that cockpit, like from all these different angles. Because as, as I said, I've seen this, but from a different GoPro oh, right, camera okay. angle. Well, I feel a bit sorry for her because she sounds like she's under the microscope. I yeah, don't exactly. Know why. That might be why that it, she's a little stressed out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah, kind of exactly. I understand that. Yeah. Well, the whole point of that was not to criticize her, but just to no, kind of have this not, discussion not about no. you know activating. I, I go back yeah. to what I said right at the beginning. I, I nothing I can say as as any comment. It really is valid because I wasn't sitting on the airplane right. and I don't know what was happening. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, we're just using it as an example. Perhaps. Exactly. It just happens to be her as the example, and she's going to hate yeah. us for forever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Right. Sorry if you. Yeah. We, nothing personal, really. No. And no. and it has nothing to do with the gender or the age or anything. It's just you're just another human being that just is showing us something, and we're just using you as an ex an example. 
Number 14. Okay, number 14, we're going to wrap this thing up. Uh, Captain Jeff and crew, uh, please see the below news story that shows some very inspirational sky art courtesy of our own U.S. military. This art was apparently done uh, using a KC-135 Stratotanker. You know, it's unusual. Usually it's the Navy guys that are doing this stuff. This is an Air (laughs) Force guy. Um, Or guys, gals. Uh, He said... uh, um, but he said, boy, the pilot flying must be a real dick. <laughs> I wasn't sure if this story was true, but several news outlets are reporting it. Definitely a good laugh. Either way. Love the show. Keep it up. <laughs> Has many meanings there. Uh, Jeff that is Palatier. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was saying that he said, keep it up. And I'm thinking I'm looking at the um, the image. Oh, yeah. That, uh, that's, that's keeping that up. Although I mm-hmm. must admit, it looks a little uh, out of proportion to me. But there you go. Well... <laughs> Yeah, not everybody is uh, so blessed as you are, Captain McAparrant. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you know, that's that Cyprus where I spent many, uh, many, uh, many happy yeah. uh, detachment on that blue uh, circle. Well, actually not that blue circle up near Paphos. Uh, on the, the bit of the bottom there where there's a little bit called, uh, near Limassol. Um, uh, where there's an RAF uh, base there, and we used to do all our Edouard gunnery uh, out of Cyprus. And what fabulous food, fabulous people, uh, and a great island, uh, and fantastic flying, and more war stories you can shake a stick at <laughs> come out of, uh, out of Cyprus. Uh, marvelous. Well, all I have to say here is, Jeff, if you think that that's a ballsy maneuver... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Poor little guy. You have, you oh, have nothing there. This Lord. is a ballsy maneuver. Ouch. Oh, that's and, horrible. Yeah, that's horrible. It's a it's yeah. a it's a, a a cute little squirrel who is in a predicament. Uh, it's definitely a male. What is what is that? A self vasectomy or something? <laughs> I don't know, but it does. Uh, it makes oh, me just hurt horrible. just looking at it. Uh, that photo courtesy yeah. of uh, Nick Camacho. So if you have any complaints. The internet. That photo is courtesy of the internet. <laughs> okay, the yeah, internet. Yeah. Brought to you <laughs> by Nick Camacho. Camacho. Yeah, the SPCA gets it. Yeah, and the SPAC, uh, SPCA. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Uh, yeah, wow. That's just uh, that's that's a sad, sad situation. Situations. Speaking oh. of sad, sad situations, it's time now for us to wrap up this week's show. And to some people, it may be a very, very pleasant and good uh, situation. Um, so we are going to point you over to our website, airlinepilotguide.com, and it, it's actually still it's working. Oh, uh, so, yeah, it's good. Nice. It looks great now. Yeah. I think um, the correct verbiage there is it is once again working. Once again Jeff. working. <laughs> uh, there, we still need to make some improvements and some adjustments, and, you know, it's uh, it's a work yeah, in progress. Like I we need all to are. retire. <laughs> yeah. You, where's your updated bio, Nick? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very yeah. good question. I wish I could answer that. <laughs> well, I still have to work on, you know, making some kind of a graphic to put up on the video of all the wonderful people that are contributors contributors to our show, part of the Coffee Fun Cadre. And I just never get around to it. I just run out of time. But I'm, 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 it's always on my mind. So I promise one of these days I'll do that. But we do thank all of you for your financial contributions. And uh, oh, anyway, absolutely. so AirlinePilotGuy.com, make sure you go there right now before it goes down again. Uh, and then you can see <laughs> everything that's there. <laughs> and uh, let's Get see. Get it while it's there. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, we are on uh, social media, what I like to call the Meads. And uh, Captain Nick, would you like to do the honors? I would love to. Facebook. Now, if you're on Faceplant, uh, you just need to uh, look for Airline Pilot Guile, one word. And if you go to Twitter, uh, then uh, which is now called something else. Actually, Faceplant's called Meta, so Meta, Twitter, almost rhyme, don't they? At <laughs> um, uh, APG Crew. And thank you very much indeed for, to Elon Musk for taking control of that and making it such a wonderful place to be. <laughs> Uh, inst- instas and Steph loves the instas and I must admit I the videos on the instas some of them are quite funny anyway uh, instas very like Twitter APG crew is our handle there so that's where to go and that's where to find us and just to be uh, even even handed uh, I, Elon go for it I'm behind you. Yeah, yeah, please do. <laughs> okay. Your electric cars are great in outer space. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, Slack is another uh, quasi, uh, what you call it, uh, kind of a social media thing. Hang on. Still 15 seconds to go. No, it's not. Okay. Um, is apparently, this wrong? Captain, uh, I mean, not Captain. Captain Hillel uh, is a little bit... Um, out of order at this point so he's not ready to tell us about slack but luckily for you i do have a recording of him telling us about slack apg listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser on slack we share news and ideas we suggest episode and plain tales topics we plan events and meetups to get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. We do appreciate all the work that you... Uh, we appreciate all the work you do. Jeff... Would yep. you loop on my back again? Uh, ap- after the show, hello. I've told you this so many times. I don't know why you keep doing that, but uh, anyway. What is wrong with him? I don't know. But, you know, you see in that picture of him, he's holding a loofah, and uh, he just loves that thing. Um, Where did you like it? Well, I can't really tell you. We'll talk the post show. We'll, uh, we'll go into that. Oh, okay. Fair and uh, also, we'd like to thank our producer, director, Oh, yeah, she's coming. I can see her. Oh, there she is. Liz Piper. There were a um, lot of overlays today. Well done. Yeah, yeah. And Liz, tell us, uh, you you were, uh, you took a little bit of a mini vacation the last year. Yeah, I went up. I have some friends who have a house up on Lake Huron near a place called Kincardin, and it's a beautiful place overlooking the lake. And they have two lovely dogs that exhausted my dog, who's just flaked out here. But it was just a nice change of pace. Went up and had a visit. The weather was beautiful. It's often very, excuse me, it's often very stormy up there, but. It was nice, very nice to go up and see it. Excellent. Speaking of stormy, um, we, um, you let me open the door. Where's he going with it? Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. It's kind of, kind of rainy and windy here for some reason. I think it's, uh, that, that Hurricane Nicole's heading up here toward Georgia. It's time to bat in the hatches. Here, let me close the door. Make sure there's no leak in there in the basement. (laughs) Yeah, well, 
that that is a real thing. I'm really kind of worried about that list. But we're not going to talk about that on the uh, podcast. We're live, <laughs> and people that may want to buy our house might be actually watching You this. really think they watch this and want yes, to buy your house? Yes, there are so many people that watch <laughs> No, not really. Okay. Well, thanks for everything that you do, Liz. We missed you, and I'm glad that you made it back in time for the show tonight. And uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, shut this thing down for the evening. Thank you again to our live audience, our our, uh, chat room. You guys and gals are just wonderful. Thank you so much for being here each and every week to support us uh, in your wacky way. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Goodbye, wacky way people. See you all next time. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline pilot guy I fly America oh airline pilot guy he can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I